Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 27 of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kimbui Bomani, and I'm back again with my man, Guy Hoop Intellect. We had an episode a few months back talking about the pre-draft process and drafts done, summer leagues finished. And before we delve into that, just want to let Hoop talk about his experience at the NBA Summer League in Las Vegas. It was his first time going there. Checked out the vlog on his channel before we even did this episode. And just want to speak to you, Hoop, about how that experience was like and what was it like to connect with players and coaches during that sequence? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really know what to expect going into it. Um, it was something I always wanted to do, uh, you know, just watching the league growing up, always looking at summer league as, as a as a time that you get a lot of access. You get, a, you get to be right there in action. And, you know, I was out there for about, think six or seven days so it was a pretty pretty long trip um I was within walking distance to the you know Thomas and Mack Center so that was cool um saved a lot of money on Ubers and stuff like that uh through that but um yeah so you know as you get there there's a lot going on um there's like a there was like a top shop booth and everything like that you get like actual moments and stuff um but being close to the action just going into the Cox Pavilion, um, getting to, you know, talk to some other media members, um, getting recognized by people. That was a very interesting feeling. Definitely haven't had any, any experience like that before. Um, seeing Bam out of bio show up with his gold medal. Uh, you know, there was a lot of random things, you know, seeing Steph Curry, Giannis up close, um, Deontay Burton, I mean, he's a fringe NBA player, but he was sitting right next to me at some point. That was random. Uh, being next to the, the families, you know, hearing Camp Thomas' mom, you know, screaming, cheering for, for her son, like Josh Christopher's family. Just being able to be in that environment, it really felt like, you know, just an AAU tournament. And I know, maybe not for me, but I know for some other people, that was a really good thing to see because there's somewhere this stuff gets kind of lost and people stop for, start forgetting that these are actually people too. You know, they just happen to be, you know, really good at, at this one thing. So, you know, overall, I really enjoyed the experience. Um, got to talk to, you know, several people that I definitely didn't imagine I would, but you know, yeah, overall it was, it was a pretty fun, fun experience. Yeah. I just want to let the listeners know if they didn't listen to the last time me and Hooper on, a segment who been like is a YouTuber um, who does a very good job at creating content about NBA prospects during their collegiate days. And he's got 30 K subscribers as of right now. And he's been on the grind for a few years. He's really good at what he does. So for sure, check him out on a YouTube content area there. Now who, um, what was it like experiencing live NBA content in terms of like, these are the guys that you scouted film on for months and now you get to see them play live at the summer league so what were some things within their games that you saw live that you kind of can't really capsulate in film uh virtually yeah so the the biggest thing that stands out is just the body language I think that's a big part of the game um, that you don't really necessarily get to see over you know the ESPN broadcast or whatever um so that's the first thing um just seeing how big or small certain guys are um, in person, being able to look, get a close look at their forms in terms of shooting and things like that. Um, 
you know, there's been a lot of questions around Sharif Cooper's height, for example. Uh, he's definitely six foot. You know, I wasn't sure if he might actually be 5'10", or, you know, he's definitely not 6'4", they listed. Uh, but he's 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 definitely six foot. Um, another guy like Killian Hayes, which is last year, but he's a lot bigger than I expected. You know, I thought he he's a lot he's probably closer to like six six than he is to six three um, in terms of size. So just little things like that, being able to see body language, being able to see, you know, effort, seeing them talk to the refs, how do they respond to certain adversity. Um, not that you can make a whole generalization out of a few summer league games, but just being able to pick up on those little things um, is really fun. And something that, you know, everybody really missed out on last year, um, just being with COVID and everything. Yes. Uh, another thing I want to talk about, and you kind of piggybacked on it, well, introduced it early on in your soliloquy, being able to connect with players and media members. Um, who are you able to kind of have that conversation with whether it's guys in the league or players that you have scouted who were playing in the summer league, what type of media members you were able to get in contact with, and what were those exchanges like and those connections you were probably able to manifest within Thomas and Mac in Vegas? Yeah, so in terms of, like, the players, I was pretty limited. Um, you know, they go into a whole different area uh, at the time, so I didn't really have the the access to, you know, really sit down with, you know, a lot of players. but I did, you know, there was times where Macy Oteague from Baylor, he was he was in the hallway. Greg Brown and Trenton Watford, um, they were in line to get uh, popcorn at one point. So, you know, they were right there. Um, but overall, you know, like in terms of media members, I got a shout out from, from Nate Duncan, who, you know, a lot of controversy around his name or whatever, but you know, he does some some good uh, some content. He has a big platform. I think he has like 100K Twitter followers. And on his Dunked On weekly newsletter or something like that, he actually featured my Summer League preview um, on Twitter. So that was that was a cool experience. But in terms of like the players and everything, I think that's something that will probably happen next year more. Um, I connected with some other people, like smaller YouTubers, um, Things, things of that nature that were a little bit more accessible, not like I didn't see Bill Simmons or, or somebody or, you know, I did see Mike Schmitz. I didn't get to talk to him, but as he was about to do a TV spot, I almost said something to him, not that he knew who I was uh, and I had my mask on and everything, but I was, I was about to, but we didn't really get that opportunity as much as I, you know, really would have liked, but just the overall experience was fun. Um, got to meet a lot of new people, um, but no, no, like huge names. I didn't get to like talk to Jalen Green or anything like that. I would have loved to, but that just didn't, that just didn't happen. That doesn't really present itself in the way that you, you know, you might think. The best part probably being there had to be the people that recognize your content, your loyal subscribers or people that probably aren't subscribed to you, but check out your content daily or weekly on YouTube. Talk about really being able to have exchanges with them. I know in the vlog you talked about how it was kind of limited because the day was busy, you were in a rush, and the situation is what it is right now. Talk about, in essence, the celebrity that you've kind of gotten from where you started and where you are now, that people are starting to notarize you and probably want pictures taken or a brief conversation with you because they appreciate that content that you produce on YouTube. Yeah, so 
that is definitely a feeling that you can't like really prepare for. I mean, you're going to a place where you're just assuming there's all strangers um, and you just kind of carry yourself in that way, like by nature. But, you know, there are several times I go up into the stands, you know, try to sit on a certain place. You know, some people would be like, hey, hooping, are you hooping elector? You know, things like that. And, you know, we talk for a second or talk with some other people who recognize me. And, you know, that's a that's a good feeling, just knowing where I started um, and how fast it's kind of just all come. And, you know, COVID has made things kind of weird because there was never anything else like that. There wasn't any other times where I would have gone to an NBA game or maybe I we would have saw each other at the finals or, you know, whatever else, All-Star Weekend. You know, that's a lot. That's a big time where people you know, connect in, in the NBA space. But so there was none of that until, you know, now and <laughs> experienced um, when you're in an elevator and somebody notices your shirt and then set, figures out that, that, you know, that I am the one who made those videos. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that part of it. Definitely got to get used to that feeling a little bit more. But yeah. And last but not least, the biggest thing I have a question for you is, uh, you finally experienced summer league for the first time. And what is the biggest takeaway you might have from that experience that you had this time around that you'll take away, maybe even better your experience next year when you have the opportunity to do it all over again in 2022? Yeah, so biggest, biggest takeaway. I'll say one thing. My my goal next year is to get a official media pass. Uh, I did not have that this year. I feel like if I really tried hard enough, I could have been able to to get one this year, but I just, there was a lot going on. I was, you know, all the way in on making the draft videos, didn't have much time for really anything. Uh, I had to like get some other people to really plan the trip because I was just so consumed by, by, by my work or whatever. But yeah, definitely want to get that next year um, just to get into a few different areas. Um, and then, you know, I guess I guess the, the next thing is just to continue to stay present. I brought my camera in once one time, technically, you know, without the media pass, you're not allowed to or whatever, but they let me through. And when you're doing that, you can't completely fall on the game because you're trying to create content and things like that. But, as, but for the most part, I really tried to be able to – the biggest thing I wanted to take away from it was how people were playing or, you know, the experience, think, picking up things about the actual game. So just continuing that if that's what you want to do. If you're there to do something else, you know, do that wholeheartedly. Um, but, yeah, those are kind of the, the biggest things that I would uh, take away. And in advice for somebody else going, you know, just make, make some connections with people. Um, you know, you never know where that will lead you to. And yeah, that's that's basically it. So that grind, just making draft content, creating uh, those type of videos for your subscribers, being able to go to the summer league and experience those players that you basically scouted perform on the court kind of prevented you from being able to well round the rest of your YouTube channel. So all that's done. And now you've talked about how your mindset on um weekly uploads on your podcast you got the hoop internet podcast you're going to drop more basketball content of variety what's the vision for your channel moving forward now that the draft and summer league is now complete 
Yeah. So until we get, you know, all the way into the college basketball season, like probably halfway, we'll start dropping like more focused stuff on that. But in, yeah, until then, we're going to, we're focused on making, you know, those film study videos. I've done, you know, a few on LaMelo Ball, uh, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, just to name a few. But those are super focused, super detailed. Um, some of my best work that I've ever done. I think they're, they have sort of the best combination of entertainment and information that I've been able to produce. Um, but besides that, the podcast have a sponsor for that. So that's going to be, um, you know, more consistent, getting more guests on for that, uh, doing some focus videos on, you know, certain types, certain parts of the game that I mean in the scouting videos, I don't actually have the time to sort of explain like footwork or, you know, certain parts of the pick and roll, defending that, you know, um, something as simple as rejecting the screen or, um, those corner skip passes, just certain things like that. I feel like people still kind of need a little bit of background on, but I can't fully give that when I'm doing the scouting videos. And then, you know, changing the format up just a little bit. But other than that, I think, you know, that's those are some of the ideas that I have. But, you know, there, there's there's plenty more that I, that I know is coming in the future. Right. I can't wait to really lock in on that Hoop and LA podcast. Saw the first one you were able to drop or like the content that was on there. And hey, whenever you need a guest, I'm available if <laughs> you want to make that potentially happen. So I uh, can't wait to see what you do with your channel. You got a great one at that. I've been able to spread that around to a variety of people. Uh, put my dad on to you and you know every time he come back to me be like, yeah, the guy you put me on, Hoop and LA, you said this, this, and this. And I'm like, yeah. So it's been great seeing you blossom and I can't wait to see you blossom some more. Appreciate it, man. No problem. So let's dive deep into the summer league. And we're going to start off with the top four prospects in the draft. And we're just going to dive right into it with Kate Cunningham. He had a pretty unique summer league experience. He was able to average 18 points a game, five rebounds, a steal, but did shoot 42% from the field. He hit 50% from beyond the arc on 26 of his three-point shot opportunities, made seven threes against the New York Knicks. Uh, you talked about it a little bit in your vlog, and I was able to kind of see it on TV. Didn't really get to handle the basketball as a primary decision maker like we were accustomed to him seeing at Oklahoma State. But what did you like in terms of his ability to acclimate to an NBA-level style game and his versatility to play on and off the ball as a playmaker, a driver, and a spot-up shooter? Yeah, so even through, you know, some of the difficult or the kinks that the Pistons team would kind of work out, given – different ball handling responsibilities to guys like Killian Hayes, Saban Lee. You still got Sadiq Bey out there trying to get into, you know, rhythm and the flow. Um, Cade was still able to affect all facets of the game, especially defensively. I mean, he's not come up with a bunch of highlight blocks or things of that nature that you're going to, you know, really remember. But he was he was all over the place. Um, like the dynamic that he and Killian could bring on that end of the floor. And then, like you mentioned before, shooting, he was one of the best shooters that I saw. The percentages are going to show that, but, you know, I'm looking even deeper into that. The footwork was great, smooth release, confidence. You know, you saw all of that in the Knicks game, which was kind of his breakout game. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, it wasn't as flashy as maybe Jalen Green or, you know, 
didn't have the biggest of moments like maybe uh, Jalen Suggs did. But overall, Cade was, you know, he showed why he is, he was that, you know, number one guy. He really got after it on a defensive end. I think that was something that did stand out in those earlier games when, like you said, he didn't have the flashiest performances, the shot wasn't falling. Um, how important do you think his ability to impact the game on a defensive end will help elevate or set the tone for that Detroit Pistons squad led by Dwayne Casey, who we know preaches defense first and foremost on his squads? Yeah, I think it's huge, you know, just having a guy at that size who can guard multiple positions and wants to guard multiple positions, um, super valuable, especially when, you know, the things don't get going offensively. You've always got that to rely upon. Not saying that he's like this lockdown type of guy, but he's somebody who can, you know, hold his own against a variety of players. And that's super important in the modern NBA. It helps you put out different lineups, you know, um, and especially with, you know, the group of guys that they have, a lot of young guys, a lot of unproven, um, need to be able to be a little bit more creative. Cade helps that a lot. Um, and, you know, this summer league, he only played three games. But, you know, going forward, I think there was a little bit of overreaction just in that first game against Jalen Green. You know, that's that's how people end up, you know, they end up going that direction eventually. Um but I think he was really solid. And you look at all the parts of his game, you look at the role that he was put into. He ma- he mastered that role immediately. And I think that's something that's super important going forward um, to the to the big leagues. Yeah, master of multiple roles. I think that's what Cunningham was able to prove early on. But I think the big question I have for you, Hoop, and I guess we're both eager to wonder, uh, how long do we expect Detroit to kind of let Killian Hayes be the primary ball handler for these guys moving forward and allow Cade to play off ball? Or do you feel like it's inevitable that Detroit will eventually part ways with Killian and then make Cade the primary decision maker moving forward? You know, I'm, I'm not sure. I think I can't tell if Detroit just wanted, you know, Saban Lee and Killian to get those reps. They already felt like Cade could do what he could do. They just wanted to see him in this spot. Um, that's a very, you know, high possibility that that's what they wanted. But I don't know. I feel like if you split those duties just a little bit more in the regular season, give Cade the ball, let Killian focus on becoming a better spot-up shooter. I think he only shot like 18% from three or something like that during summer league, which isn't going to cut it, um, whether he's on the ball or, you know, spotting up. So, I don't know. I feel like they can play together. Killian still has so much time and so much room left to grow. Like, I feel like it'd just be an overreaction for a guy who missed the big portion of his his rookie season with an injury, came back down the stretch, had a few good moments. And then, you know, in summer league, that's the that's the most recent thing that we've seen from him. So you start to kind of, you know, think about him in a certain way, but in a, in a small sample size. But, you know, going forward, I think you're just going to have to wait and see what happens. I personally think Cage should be given the ball a little bit more than than he was in the summer league. But, you know, there could have been other reasons for that. Yeah, I agree. I think eventually over time we're going to see Cade have that basketball in his hands to do what he does best. I do feel like what him, Hayes, Sadiq Bey, and Saku Duboya were able to prove is that they're going to be a tough defensive team. And I think that's going to be effective in the East where you don't have a ton of high-scoring teams within that conference. So they're going to get after defensively. And I think that's important for a team that's trying to figure out their offensive identity. The offense is going to come. 
but the defense is something that you can control and set the tone with. And I think Katie's going to provide that for Casey and the Pistons. And they're in a good spot. But I'm going to be honest, I know who what you're saying is give Killian time. But we'd be fools if we're, if we're thinking his clock is ticking because you got a guy that plays your same position. He's very effective at what he does. And if they can't find a role for him there, it's a guy that they can utilize as a trade asset to kind of fill out the rest of the pieces around an all-NBA talent like Cunningham. you got to, at least for this season, let it ride out, figure it out. I mean, the worst-case scenario, you don't make the play-in. Like, I feel like that's really the goal for the Pistons this year, just make that play-in game. Um, and then just see what it is. But this year, you know, you experiment, you see what happens. If you don't see the signs of him really elevating his game, you feel like having somebody else next to Cade, if you see those Frank Jackson minutes looking a lot better than, or those Saban Lee minutes looking a lot better than they are with, with Killian, then you go in a different direction and you just figure it out from there. I feel like they have the flexibility. They have enough talent, enough young talent to be able to do, you know, what they they need without feeling like they have to save an asset or, you know, really pour into something that's not working. Um, now that they have Cade and they have, you know, Sadiq Bey, they have Isaiah Stewart, um, they have Jeremy Graham. They have a lot of flexibility to, to be able to do that. A lot of flexibility. They're in a very good spot to be in. Um, and they are in a conference where I do feel the East will be better. And I think probably be better than the West in about five years. But the goal has to be to make the plan. You make the plan, you build from there. And I do feel like Detroit is in a spot to do that. Now, with Jalen Green on the Houston Rockets, had a very dynamic summer league, to say the least. Average 20 points per game on 51, 52, and 92 shooting splits. Meaning he shot 51 from the field, 52 from three, and almost 93% from the line. It was very evident within those games, his ability to create elevation and separation off the dribble shot opportunities was insane. He felt like a more athletic Bradley Beal. Like it just felt like every time he's able to get that creation off the bounce and then just elevate to get his shot off, it looked unbelievable. Um, he shot 20, he scored 25 points in his head-to-head matchup with Cade Cunningham. I think the biggest issue with him moving forward is kind of gonna be slowing the game down it does feel like he plays very fast at a very helter skelter pace he can't get him into turnover situations but how comfortable do you feel he'll be able to set the tone and be that franchise player for Houston year one yeah I really like that dynamic between him and Kevin Porter Jr you know KPJ's got a little bit more uh playmaking ability it comes a little bit more naturally to him he's had more experience um, with the ball in his hands but those two together I think they can make something really special happen and, you know, this this uh, summer league performance for Jalen Green was just the start. Um, and I think they, they'll be able to work together pretty well. And, you know, they're going to catch a couple teams off guard throughout the season. The defense is not going to be great. I think that's, you know, just going to be a given. But offensively, they're going to be able to put up points. And behind those two, they're going to be able to put up, you know, them fairly easily and in multiple ways. Yeah, it's crazy with Houston. It felt like when they traded Harden and basically didn't get back LaVert, Oladipo, we all thought Houston was in no man's land and their rebuild would be impossible to orchestrate. And then they get the second overall pick. You get Jalen Green. And during that process, before they got Jalen, Porter Jr. develops into that all-star caliber talent. We all knew he could be in Cleveland. He just never had the opportunity. Kenya Martin Jr. was phenomenal in his role. And now we see what Jalen Green can provide. 
Um, you talked about KPJ's ability to play make. They're in a unique spot to where they don't have a definite point guard, but we do know what Porter Jr. is able to bring to the table as an on-ball playmaker. Um, how important is it for their backcourt to find that fine balance between getting their buckets and then making sure everybody on the offensive end gets fed as well? Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what they do with John Wall. Um, I think that he'll probably stay around. At least early on, I think he's a good vet for them to have. But, you know, past that, looking forward into the future, because I, I don't think that he I think his days of being, you know, that guy are, are kind of behind him. And especially with that contract, he might look elsewhere. Um, But, yeah, you know, if they're going to run those two as the primary, you know, ball handlers, that's going to be something that they have to address because their scores first um, and super skilled at it at that. So, um. I don't know. It would just be an interesting dynamic to see how they grow um, and which one takes the lead is like being that guy who can really pressure on the defense first and then really look to his teammates because, you know, you kind of got to have that, um, you know, in the in the NBA. You do indeed. And I think they'll be able to figure that out for sure. Uh, I think best bet for Houston is Porter Jr. develops into like a James Harden caliber player where he's able to create that balance while still being effective as a playmaker in his own right. Uh, third overall was Evan Mobley. He had a very tough summer league, to say the least. The talent is there from an athletically skilled standpoint. He's nimble, he's athletic, great feet. He's got a nice touch, but the shooting percentage from three wasn't there. It, he was kind of getting muscled outside of the paint, so it's pretty obvious he has to add strength there. Um, moving forward for Mobley within the Cavs system, it's pretty clear Allen and Mobley are going to be their twin towers for at least the next two to three years. Um, is it vital that for this to work, Mobley has to develop that three-point shot for that lineup to work? And do you think with Mobley moving forward at the pro level, is it just going to come down to him defining that touch that he has, redefining it that it is at the pro level, and then getting it to the weight room and redefining his body into a more compact figure than what it is right now? Yeah, so that that front court with Mobley and Allen, you know, I think he's he's going to have to to space the floor. I think he can. You know, there was some times he had the pull ups, you know, between the legs into a pull up at that size. You just don't see that very often. Um, still a work in progress, like you said. He got what twelve percent from three. Then the three games that he played, not great. Um, small same size though, but you, so we'll, we'll wait that. Um, I don't know. You know, they got Jared Allen. Uh, locked into a contract but you know I don't think that he's somebody who's like a really piece that they're building around for the future unless you know Mobley just flames out completely for some reason which I don't think will happen um but if he's he he's able to add the strength I think that he's somebody who can play at that five spot um you know I forgot what your other question was uh trying to keep it all together yeah so the frame uh, he was a guy that was getting really pushed outside the paint a lot, and it affected his offensive repertoire, especially with the hook shots and whatnot. Do you think it just really comes down to him compacting his frame for him to basically achieve the level of skills that he's been able to do high school and at the collegiate level? Yeah, I think it's just – it'll just be a process. We saw it with Anthony Davis. I think Evan Mobley's a little bit further along in terms of offensive skill set than AD was even coming out of Kentucky. Um he was super raw at, at at Kentucky offensively, and even you know before his his first year, 
you know, leading into that in the in, in the Olympics or what we saw from him, just more of a lob threat and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's just going to be the, the strength, you know, he's got good touch added, you know, the post fade, which I've been really wanting him to add, you know, he always tries to go into that hook and the fade is there. Um, but yeah, as he just continues to refine and add stuff to his game, just adding that strength, you know, there shouldn't be a reason that, you know, Josh Christopher is super strong, but given the size, Mobley's got to be able to take advantage of that quickly and not try to bang with people too often when that's a war that he's not going to win against very many people. He's got to be able to do it quick, fast, um, and, you know, use his his size to his advantage, whether that's a fadeaway, whether that, you know, off of one leg, you know, things of that like that, um, just relying on that touch a little bit more, that's going to really ultimately define whether he can reach those Bosch um, 80, you know, levels. Defensively, he's there. I think he'll be there for as long as he can stay healthy. But offensively, that's just really going to be, you know, a work in progress over the next two, three yeah, for Cleveland, uh, defensively in their front court, they're in a good spot. Okoro, Mobley, Allen are guys that can impact the game very evidently defensively. And so now this is a roster where it just seemed like ever since LeBron has left, it's been a no-man's land. Now they're kind of filling everything out. Uh, Sexton's going to stay in the fold. Garland looks like he's got that point guard position down. Uh, how do you feel this roster will be able to translate two to three years down the line? in terms of their ability to play together? And if they can, what do you think their ceiling can be in the East? Yeah, so this season is going to tell a lot about that. Uh, there's still a lot of questions. About, like, it feels like Tr Colin Sexton is in a trade rumor every week. Um, so we'll have to see what what ultimately ends up happening, if he's going to be there, you know, past next season, just given the contract situation and, you know, things like that. But I really like Darius Garland. I think he has, you know, some untapped potential that people haven't talked about. I think we'll see that more this year, especially alongside guys like Jared Allen and Evan Mobley going forward. Um, I think he can be a really effective guard in the East. Um, the best. You got Isaac Okoro, you know, slasher, defender. I think that's really where his calling card is going to be the bulk of his career, you know, his ability to make plays for others and then, you know, shoot from the outside is going to dictate how good of a player he can become. But overall, I think there's still, you know, piece or two away from being like some, a team that you can really rely on being a perennial playoff team in the East. Um, whether that piece be or a coral, whether that piece be Evan Mobley as, you know, really establishing them themselves as, you know, high-level NBA players like Colin Sexton. We saw Colin Sexton do early last season and really throughout his uh, season last year. He gets sort of a bad rap just kind of because of the roster construction, um, and they haven't won any games like that. But he's he's a really good player. 22, 23-year-old, don't walk around putting up nearly 25 a game on the efficiency that he has. That's just not something that happens. So – if they can put a team together, that's best case scenario. But ultimately, they're going if they do decide to move on from him because they like Garland or just because of the roster construction, they need to get high value out of him. Not any of this, you know, trade to New York just because they don't want to pay him. 
scenario, pay him, win games, then figure it out to try to get to that next goal. I agree. Um, I do. I, we all recognize that early on in that process, Sexton was on the block. They're able to get Mobley. Now it's like Sexton's in their plans for the future. I always feel like that situation with Sexton was a money issue. And when you're not a good team and guys are coming up in the rookie deals that you have to extend, it's understandable to be hesitant to give them that full maximum type deal because it's like, well, you haven't really impacted us to winning terrain since you've been here. So we get all that. I do feel like the roster is constructed a little bit weird. So it's interesting to see how everything translates moving forward. But as where it is, this was a lot different from the roster of Kyrie, Deion Waiters, Tristan Thompson, Anthony Bennett. It's a lot better because the upside of town that they have now is real. Like these guys that are able to well-define their games and skill sets within the league, they can be strong contributors, solid all-star caliber talents. I think it's just going to come down to I think the coach and the identity. I don't feel like Bickerstaff is the answer. I feel like Bickerstaff has been kind of a placeholder. And I think you give Bickerstaff one more year to kind of figure it out with a more talented roster. If he's not able to find a definite form for these guys, you pivot for him and get somebody in there that's probably young, relatable to these guys, and can help build them moving forward. Phoenix and Atlanta. These are two teams that we all saw this year get to levels that we didn't really expect them to get to. And they were young teams who franchises were struggling, middling in the middle of mediocrity in the lottery. They were able to get coaches who were able to develop an identity that the young players were able to collab with and connect with perfectly. And so I think Cleveland's in that spot. And this is the year to kind of figure everything out. And then I think they'll be able to get to that point and be a lot more productive than they've ever been since LeBron's left. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think the big area for them to address is the wing. They can get some wings in there who can play multiple positions, guard multiple people, not saying that they to, you know, be 20 points per game scores or anything like that. It's people who can play three and D cover for your Garlands, your Sextons, if they, if they, whether, what they, depending on what they do in that backcourt um, going forward, that's going to be sort of the key, the next key, um, probably getting Kevin Love out of there as soon as possible. Um, just given his contract and the things that he's sort of added to this team, you know, the last couple of years in terms of like teammates and, you know, he's not the same guy anymore contract wise. And, um, but yeah, you know, they, they have the roadmap isn't quite clear yet, but they have the talent. So that's always a good, a good spot to be in. I agree. I know who you want to say it. I will. Kevin Love's been acting real. J.J. Redicky. So you got to get him out of there. I mean, contract's bad. He's not being a professional. But I think once that's done with, they're able to formulate a clear identity. I think they'll be in a much better space. And then last but not least in that top four, Scotty Barnes. It was shocking selection for the Raptors. I think we all thought they were going Jalen Suggs. They've been talking about Scotty Barnes being a part of their plans leading up to draft night. But the last thing I read leading up to draft night was Suggs was your guy over Barnes. And they took Barnes. Now, the rumor is Barnes had the best workout out of the two. Um, he kind of pre- kind of presents this identity that Masai Ujiri wants in these modified Toronto Raptors post-Kyle Lowry era, which is versatile defensive wings all over the place whose offensive upsides are somewhat limited. But the feeling is if you can develop them to at least borderline solid, it makes them playable throughout a variety of games. Like, they're 
become playable to the point where you don't have to bench them because you fear their offensively limited and inclined and all that. But I thought Barnes played particularly well in the summer league in terms of showcasing that he can be a guy that can handle the ball and be productive as an on-ball decision maker. Uh, he showed offensive capabilities. Remember his first summer league game, he was able to provide that 18-point performance, uh, another 20-plus point performance against Charlotte. Um, it's clear that his three-point shot needs work, but he could do everything else offensively. He can kind of get to the basket. He can kind of post up a little bit and show up ability to shoot over both shoulders, turn over both shoulders, shoot with the left hook, the right hook, the fadeaway jump shot we saw, Kobe-esque. And so with Barnes, do you feel like he can be what Toronto kind of wants him to be? And I guess the feeling Toronto has is maybe he can be Kawhi Leonard-esque where the offense can slowly come because Toronto, we know what they are from a professional development standpoint because the defensive ability is there, the ball handling ability is there, the point forward ability is there. It all just comes down to what he can bring offensively. Yeah, you know, Scotty Barnes, he played really well in the summer league. Um, going forward with this Raptors team, it's it's still kind of a clunky fit. He's not going to have the type of role that he had in the summer league just because you have Fred Van Vliet, you have Pascal Siakam, you got OG Ananobi, who are going to take on, you know, a lot of those uh, responsibilities because they're better and they should, you know. Um, but as he as he's able to you know, work on his game, become a better spot-up three-point shooter. Um, I think the sky's the limit. You know, he's he flashed a lot of offensive potential that I kind of expected him to struggle just a little bit more early on in his career. Um, but you know, it was it was for the, it was most for the most part it was there um, uh, in the summer league. But you know, with Siakam. With Ananobi, all these different kinds of uh, wings, these type of players um, already there in in Toronto, I think that, you know, as he comes off the bench, he just has to focus on, you know, being effective defensively, impacting the game, bringing the energy off the bench. And then as time goes on, whether they move certain pieces out of the way, um, then he's able to, you know, improve offensively really finds more ball handling responsibilities um, show that passing ability a little bit more. Yeah. I, I don't want to put any more added pressure on the guy, but his the vibe in summer league just really felt Kawhi Leonard. -y. And I say that because Kawhi Leonard was at San Diego state. He played predominantly inside. And so he, people weren't really able to see or realize how much of an on-ball player that he that he truly had upside-wise that was able to materialize in San Antonio and then eventually became developing the jump shot. And once that jump shot became solid from the mid and from three, he became the player that he is today. And I think Scotty's kind of on that same trajectory because early on in the summer league, you really saw the versatility he had as a ball handler and as a scorer. And you kind of realize, okay, so the feeling now is it's all about consistency spot-up-wise, consistency mid-range just jump shot-esque and adding more duality and variety in his game but the energy's there he's athletic he's an impactor transition wise running the floor and whatnot but you're right early on in his career he's not going to have those on-ball ability duties that he had in the summer league but I think it's inevitable that Siakam's on the outside looking in I know they're saying they're going to keep him this year but I think 
massage thinking best case scenario, Adanobi and Barnes are his two wings. And that's going to be able to materialize if Scotty Barnes is able to take those leaps and bounds. And I feel like the situation he's in with Toronto's pedigree developing players and then the coach he's going to have a Nick Nurse that's going to try a variety of things. Those things will figure itself out. But I think we're all surprised that they went Scotty. And my question to you is, what do you feel like the deciding factor was for the Raptors to feel like Barnes was better for them long-term than Sucks? Um, you know, probably a combination of things. You know, you've got Malachi Flynn, your first-round pick last year. I think they're still confident in him. He played pretty well in the summer league as well. Um, the combination of, you know, just getting a guy with that size and length uh, and that type of potential, I think they see something in him and their player development, if they're confident in that, then that's the guy you take most of the time. If you're 6'9", you got those physical attributes, you know, do what he can do in transition. That's very enticing um, for for an organization like that. Um, as opposed to Jalen Suggs, you know, 6'4", 6'5", guy, doesn't have, you know, maybe the the upside uh, that, that Barnes has. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't, the Sug, the whole Suggs Barnes thing, I, I just think Scotty Barnes is such a different player that it's not really, really an argument. If you go in a different direction than Jalen Suggs, like if they would have picked James Booknight there or, you know, another guard like that, then you probably have a, a bit more of a problem with it. But, you know, Scotty Barnes, super defender, you know, brings the energy and everything like that. I think that's just without knowing what happened in the workouts or if Suggs didn't shoot it well or, you know, things like that. Um, that's that's really what I would say. It's just a combination of factors that, that led them to that point. Yeah, I agree. Uh, great point in terms of being like, look, we know the debate is always going to be Barnes and Suggs, but the fact that they went Barnes showcased that they're thinking in a way different direction in terms of what everybody else thought, which is you're losing Kyle Lowry, feel that plug at the guard spot. And I always felt like they needed more of a wing than a guard anyway. I thought at the time, uh, Jonathan Kaminga probably made more sense because he's more offensively, more developed. And then he has the defensive measurables. But I think what Masai Ujiri was looking at is he remembered how great Kawhi Leonard was for that championship winning team. And obviously they weren't able to keep him. But I think recognizing his versatility defensively and an offensive development that he had to where when he came there, he was productive. I think when he went out the door, he realized what the Raptors were kind of going to be at post-Kawhi. And he was like, if I can get a guy Kawhi-esque that I can eventually develop into that type of player, it's going to open up everything I like to have on my team offensively. And he, you know, Ujiri said it. Once he got his extension, $15 million per year to continue to be the president of basketball operations in Toronto, he was like, look, man, we got to hit it in the draft. We got to develop because nobody's going to want to come to Toronto. We're not a free agent destination. So we got to maximize our identity and help build upon that by developing players within our camp. And I think Barnes is a guy that can be that. And I think once that's able to manifest, it'll be probably one of the greater value picks in all of the draft, I think, as we look past it moving forward. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think Jalen Suggs is in a great position. I think Scotty Barnes is in a great position as well. It might work out for the best um, in the end, just 
just given like the roster construction of the Magic, and that's a place that most people thought Scotty Barnes might end up. Maybe he goes to the Thunder. I like that a little bit more. But if he would have ended up in the Magic, I definitely like him in in Toronto a lot more. And Suggs in in Orlando um, looks like it's is heading in the right direction too. So might just work out for the best for both of them. For sure, indeed. Now we're gonna go to other gyms that weren't really in the top four, but. Like I said, like we both have recognized, this is arguably probably the deepest NBA draft class in recent memory. And the co-MVPs of the Summer League were LSU's renowned scorer, Cam Thomas, and Baylor's Davion Mitchell. Now, with Cam Thomas, he was a bucket machine. He was averaging 27 a game in the Summer League. He was the Summer League's leading scorer. He shot 36% from deep, 42% from the field. He had two 30-point games, had the one-legged three-point jumper to help the team beat the Washington Wizards in double overtime, that sudden death sequence. Uh, we know what Cam has been as a decorated scorer at high school at Oak Hill. I didn't know this, but he's Oak Hill's all-time leading scorer. That's legendary in its own right. At LSU, because I'm from the state of Louisiana, every time he turned the TV on, he was getting buckets. Now he's on the team. That's all about offense. But it's going to be pretty clear that he might come off the bench. He will come off the bench because you got KD, Kyrie, and Harden. But is it safe to say that Cam Thomas from day one is going to take that Karis LeVert role where when LeVert was with the Nets for like half of the season, he just came off the bench and was just looking for a shot? Or do you feel like naturally he's going to slowly develop into probably what the Nets would need him to be, which is maybe spot up shooter or be selective in how he gets his buckets as maybe just a primary ball handler for that second unit? Yeah, I, I really don't know what, what his role is going to be for them. You know, when you have three of the greatest scorers of all time, you really don't need anybody else who can score the basketball. But at that point in the draft, like he's so talented, you kind of you kind of just have to take him. And they got, you know, another another pick in De'Ron Sharp there, too. So it's like Cam Thomas can be a, a, a microwave score immediately for them. And I think that's probably the role that he takes on. Um, LeVar did a little bit more in terms of like offensive creation, like he actually run the show a little bit more. I don't think Cam Thomas is there. Uh, He had some more, he had some better passing moments in the summer league than he had at at all at LSU, which was, um, which was good to see, but still like there's moments where he, you know, take a step back at 20, 20 seconds left in the clock or, you know, miss the extra pass. You know, sometimes he would get to the line um, anyways, but you know, those opportunities aren't even there, aren't always there. And when you're playing, with, you know, six year, seven year vets, you got to make that play, you know, most of the time. Um, you're not that guy on this team, you know, you've got three Hall of Famers who do it. So they're going to help him along. Um, should be interesting to see, you know, just how he, how he develops, what lineups he actually ends up playing in. Like, is he playing alongside Harden? Is he playing alongside? Kyrie or you know is with KD um is it with Patty Mills you know they just go complete microwave give them a break while they you know try to make it through the season healthy you know we'll have to wait and see you know what they do there yeah it never hurts when you're a good team to add more talent uh but I do agree he's going to be on a slippery not a slippery slope but he's going to be on a unique he's going to be in a unique situation for the next two years because I feel like for the next two years going to still see high-level play from Durant, Irving, and Harden. And then maybe after that, they'll probably take a little step back and now allow Cam Thompson to 
take the rings and be the first round selection that he was in the draft. But um, I think the biggest thing for him is going to be shot selection and it's going to be find different ways to impact the game. At LSU, when the ball was in his hands, he was at his greatest. When the ball wasn't in his hands, he was just there. And I think in the NBA, duality is important for these young players coming in. Um, you're not in the AAU circuit or the best player on your collegiate team anymore. You're in a role where vets, established pros, all-stars, they're going to be on the roster. And it's going to be important for you to be able to find that definite, finite balance between making sure you feel comfortable playing to your talent and then playing comfortably in a role that your team designated to you. Um, I do feel like what the Nets were probably looking for is what Mike James is kind of supposed to be for them, but wasn't able to provide in the playoffs consistently just a guy to come in and relieve, you know, that Irving Harden role where he could come in beside Durant and be another bucket getter, be a guy that's a threat off the dribble and off the bounce. And I think that's what the Nets are going to continue to really stockpile on and look for. And I feel like Cam Thomas is in a good position. And if there's one thing that will always translate, if you can get buckets in college, you can probably get buckets in the pros. Yeah. So if I was in the organization right now, the biggest thing that I tell him to work on is just catch and shoot threes. You know, there's going to, if you want to see the court with those guys, you're going to have to be able to catch and shoot it and know when to and when not to, when to make the extra pass, when to attack to close out, you know, just things like that. Just make it simple for him. That's going to help him see the floor more often. Now, if he wants to focus on doing what he does, you know, that's going to take some time. This might not be the team that he ultimately gets to really do that on. Um, if that's like, especially like down the stretch of the season, when we get into the playoffs and Kyrie Harden and Katie are all playing 42 minutes plus a night, um, there might not, there may not be, you know, room for him to play. You know, you got Joe Harris still got to be out there in the serve space at the floor for them. So um, those are just kind of the things that I would tell him early on. And then, you know, hopefully he, he would get the, the opportunity to, you know, sort of expand his game. Cause you know, with a scoring ability like that, even with all the flaws that he's had, even with the shot selection, you know, the, the lack of interest playing defense, that that type of you know raw ability has like star potential and you know i think if he can if he can get into a position at least to 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 try and fail and even fail if he's not if that's not him um i'd like to see that but we'll we'll see what ends up happening with his career we'll see what ends up happening um i do agree in that sentiment of like you said, catch and shooting three-pointers is probably going to be his role from jump. Uh, the incredible spacing opportunities that Ross will provide with him on the floor is immense. So you have great chances to get quality looks. Um, I think best case scenario for Thomas moving forward, maybe he develops into that microwave second unit score that we've seen career rise from the likes of Lou Williams and Jamal Crawford. And if you're able to get that type of value, if you're the Nets and he's able to provide during a stretch where your core is elite level hard and Irving and Durant. That's going to be quality. It's going to be very valuable in the East. Now for the Sacramento Kings, Davion Mitchell was a selection that when they made, I'm not going to lie. I was kind of like another guard, really. I, lo I love Davion a lot, but I just felt like another guard, three guard lineups. How is he going to be able, how is that going to really work for Sacramento moving forward? And then summer league came and you recognize immediately that it's going to be a problem, a good problem for Sacramento because Davion's biggest impact, I thought, in Vegas was his defense. 
And then he was able to show guys he could still get his own from a shot creation standpoint off the dribble. Didn't shoot the ball particularly well from the line. I think that's a little bit concerning, and hopefully it doesn't translate when the games matter. But do you feel like the tone Mitchell was able to set for the Kings that allowed him to win the Summer League title is a tone he's going to be able to set for Sacramento to help finally elevate them into the postseason? You know, whatever it is, he he played great in the Summer League. Um, loved the leadership, loved the defensive prowess. You know, if you only had to watch Baylor one time to see, like, this dude is ridiculous defensively on the ball. I mean, his ability to mirror people, like, is, is an absolute nightmare for even some of the best ball handlers, some of the best guards in the entire world. Um, so that's an elite skill. Still, you know, juries left to see whether this really works. Um, you know, you've got De'Aaron Fox, you've got Tyrese Halliburton. I think that there's a role for him to play. Whether or not that's worthy of being the ninth pick, that's a different conversation. But I think he will help them. I think they will be able to throw out some three-guard lineups out there for moments, um, experiment a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, you know, his leadership, you know, his his tenacity, his effort, I think that meshes well with, with guys, with the personalities of, of the De'Aaron Foxes, the Tyrese Halliburtons. Um, but, you know, still still not the greatest, you know, just basketball fit, but I think they will be able to make things work, make be able to make things interesting for teams, a little bit of a matchup, you know, at least difference. They'll be able to make things different for teams. Um, as long as he's able to guard up, I think that he can. He's still, you know, about six feet tall. But if he's able to guard up and really get into some of these wings that he'll, he might have to guard, um, they should be able to make this work. Yeah, the hope with, with Mitchell is you get the Marcus Smart level defensive versatility and then offensively maybe you get that Drew Holiday type jump, like jolt. Um, and I think he's, he's going to be able to provide that. I think the saving grace for the Kings with this three-guard lineup is I think Halliburton is 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, I think he's in that range. So that allows him potentially to maybe be a small forward when they do run these type of three-guard lineups. But I think the saving grace that will help Mitchell is obviously the defense, but his ability to be effective offensively, like his shot creation, his ability to just create separation in general to get a jumper off, to get to the rim is phenomenal. And where you're able to get in a basketball platform like the Summer League and shoot 47% from three, average 5.8 assists a game. Yeah, the scoring point outputs wasn't there. 10, 10 points isn't amazing, but you're able to be a playmaker. You're able to shoot the ball particularly well. You're an impactful level player. And I think the biggest thing Sacramento was trying to sell their fan base on when they made the pick, because I, I know when that happened, I think the fan base wanted Moses Moody, who could have been a small four for him. Corey Kispert was somebody that everybody penciled in for them, but I think he was gone by then. So I think the biggest importance for their fan base that the organization tried to sell was we need defense. We weren't a great defensive team last year. We haven't been a great defensive team overall. We need somebody that can set the tone defensively for us. And he does that immediately. I think the biggest thing for the Kings now is Buddy Hield and Marvin Bagley. How are those guys going to fit into what they're trying to build moving forward? We know Bagley and his father do not like the situation in Sacramento. They want out. We know Buddy Hield wants out mainly because his minutes stay getting conflicted night in and night out with Luke Walton. How do you feel like that Sacramento roster is going to kind of create itself moving forward? And what do you feel like, in your opinion, 
the best case scenario for this team to look like to finally achieve postseason participation? Yeah, I think I think Buddy and Bagley are probably gone this season. Um, I still think Bagley has a shot at being a productive player, health willing in the league. Um, but it might not, it's probably not in Sacramento. I think there's just too much going on at this point. They're going in a different direction. Um, Buddy, I like him with this roster. I think that he, you know, makes some sense, but I don't think that relationship is very good there. Um, probably time for him to move on, get some value out of that. But yeah, you know, I think, you know, with Harrison Barnes in there, they re-signed Rashawn Holmes. Um, I like both of them. I just think, you know, they're, they're about a wing away um, from being really competitive, trying to get into that playing game. That's that's the goal. But the West is just super tough. I think it's just going to, it's going to take another player that's really making an impact. And it might just be, you know, in the lottery again, um, especially with Luke Walton in there. Uh, I, I don't trust his rotations. I don't trust what he's he's going to do with the team, but. You know, they have they have pieces in place. A few years ago, Sacramento, you know, you wouldn't fully say the same thing. And that's that's at least a good sign for them. They have, you know, De'Aaron Fox is on the same level as a John Morant. He's in the same conversation as Shea uh, Gilgis Alexander. So that's a positive for, for them. Uh, Tyrese Halliburton was one of the best rookies in the league. So, you know figure out what, what you can do with Davion Mitchell. The only thing with him is like, you know, he gets the Drew Holiday comparisons, um, you know, things like that. But at the end of the day, he is six foot, you know, Drew's six, five, Marcus Smart's six, four, those guards who can play up, you know, that's a little bit more feasible. Those dudes are rock solid. Not that he's not, he is at six foot, but it's just a little bit tougher. He doesn't have the wingspan. Donovan Mitchell, even at six, one super well-built, unbelievable athlete has like a nearly six like six ten wingspan something like that so that's just a little bit easier I just want to see you know how they they end up uh, making things work yeah that's facts like he's he's six one so he can't play the wing obviously uh, he could shoot it well enough to maybe you can get away with him playing the two but he's gonna also go in a competition with a six five Bradley Beal or 6'6", Clay Thompson. I do feel like better fits for Davion's sake where comes in, it's an easy fit. Golden State would have been phenomenal because they're trying to move Clay Thompson to the small four position really to save the face of his career because he's been compromised with the two injuries he had. So that allowed Davion to play the one. And Curry is an effective two even at 6'3", because of his shooting and his ability to be proactive off the ball. And I feel like another nice spot for Mitchell could have probably been, you know, just say Golden State, maybe a situation where New Orleans probably would have made some sense because he would have also been a guy to come in and play that one spot since Lonzo's days were numbered. I like Kyra Lewis a lot, but, you know, got to figure out his situation there. New Orleans at 10, although when they traded their pick, they gave it to Memphis, would have made a lot of sense for them there. And so even even Memphis, and I think Memphis was entertaining the opposite, the probability of getting Davion because it would allow Ja to play off the ball with his athleticism ability as well. So Sacramento probably wasn't the best fit for him, but what he brings to the table is an identity that they're looking for, and it would allow this team to be successful. But I do feel like for him to be proactive, he's going to have to play either the one or the two. 
probably have to be a two for this team. And you just hope that it works out even at its size for Sacramento. Yeah, for sure. I agree. My bad. The Atlanta Hawks, uh, they were able to get Jalen Johnson, 20th overall, and able to get Sharif Cooper, probably two of the most incredible value selections during the draft in that process. We know Johnson's stock dropped because of the situation he had at Duke. A lot of people were questioning his work ethic, his tenacity for the game. We clearly saw in the summer league, he cares <laughs> to play basketball. We just knew the collegiate situation at Duke was what it was. It doesn't personify who he is as a player. But off rip, you saw he reminds me a lot of a raw version of John Collins. He's athletic. He's able to run up and down the floor. Tremendous bounce that's impactful on lobs, offensive and defensive rebounding situations. And because of athleticism, he's able to be much more of a defensive factor than a lot of people gave him credit for coming into the draft. And then what Sharif Cooper was able to provide, uh, we all know what he's been able to represent since his All-American days in high school. The reason why he dropped this four had a lot to do with his size and his shooting ability from deep kind of can't really, we, you just acknowledge he's six feet. He's not six, four. He's going to, that size is something you can't replace, but he can shoot the bar particularly well. And he's able to be a playmaker. I think an ideal fit for when Nate McMillan runs. It's a weird situation with Atlanta because it's a good one. Johnson and Cooper are literally like carbon copies of young and Collins. And so when you're able to provide that at your second unit where I can replace my starters with guys that can come in and do the same thing, how finite does it really make that Atlanta Hawks team into kind of finally being what they truly have built themselves towards for the past three years? Yeah, so, you know, the the Atlanta Hawks are in a great position. Um, you look at what you have with Sharif Cooper and Jalen Johnson off the bench uh, just role guys, guys who are projecting towards the future. Um, I think Jalen Johnson will probably help them in some way in year one, especially, you know, given that Okongwu is out um, for a good amount of the season with his injury. Um, Sharif now, I don't, I'm not sure how much he's going to play, especially given that they brought in DeLon Wright. Um, they already give, you know, Bogdanovich and Kevin Herter a lot of those uh, ball handling, playmaking uh, responsibilities. But looking towards the future, they have, you know, one of the best chances to get a, a superstar with these this amount of assets that they have on this team. And a team that just put um, – just went to the Eastern Conference Finals and was competitive against the eventual NBA champions. This you, – you know, you're, you're playing with, with house money at this point. Um, you know, Trey is going to continue to get better. Re signed uh, John Collins, continue to get better. Um, you'll you will see what they do with DeAndre Hunter. He got a lot better last year. Cam Reddish showed some signs towards the end, even in the postseason. Um, so we'll see what they do. But like, I feel like this is just going to lead up towards um, Sharif being involved in a trade package for, you know, Bradley Beal or some other star in the future. And then Sharif gets his chance to really shine and run the show somewhere. I feel like that's what's going to end up happening um, just with their wealth of riches and how this roster is constructed. But hopefully we get to see some Trey Young, Sharif Cooper minutes, you know, like going back and forth with that. Cause that's just unbelievable to watch. If you like passing, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. If you're a guard or you're, you know, a regular sized human being, uh, you know, those are the guys you, you kind of gravitate towards and watch. It's crazy that you said uh, probably best case scenario for Atlanta would be 
Um, they get these guys that they just got in Johnson and Cooper, and Cooper becomes their trade asset. Along with some young prospects that they have on their team to help get that superstar that could probably put them over the top. I feel a little different. I feel like getting Cooper and Johnson makes Atlanta the team of the East, I think, in this decade. And I feel like Nate McMillan finally got his guy at point guard in Cooper. There's no knock against Trey Young, but it's pretty clear that McMillan and Young, there was a divide that they were able to finally usurp because I think McMillan finally got to Young's head. You're at your best when you're operating like a Steve Nash on steroids than a knockoff Damian Lillard. And what I mean by that is jacking up shots isn't the most proactive for what McMillan is trying to instill offensively for Atlanta. But being a driver of the basketball and a driving kicker and a playmaker in the pick and roll, way more effective and helps put Collins in a much more offensive upside situation. Bogdanovich is able to maximize his potential. So I think getting a guy like Cooper allows McMillan to get a guy within his second unit that he incorporate within the starters as an on-ball decision-maker because he's a much more natural point, I think, than Trey Young is, as gifted as Trey Young is as a passer. And it also allows McMillan to hold Young accountable because there's probably some games where McMillan's probably like, I want to bench Young for a minute to kind of get his mind right and kind of put the team in a much more straighter path. But I can't because our backup point guard is Chris Dunn, and he's not that good at running the show. So now Cooper in the fold and his productivity level allows McMillan to be more critical with Young but not lose a step offensively in what Cooper can provide. And I don't really think Cooper's going anywhere. I think Cooper's probably going to be a mainstay when Atlanta's trying to build. I do feel like Atlanta – I think what they're probably going to do moving forward is clear the clutter that they have on the wing. You have Bogdanovich, Hunter, and Reddish. They were really trying to move Reddish after the impact he was providing in the conference final. It didn't work out, so I think that keeps Reddish in the fold for one more year. And then I think depending on how Hunter and Reddish kind of are able to further develop themselves in their third years in the league will kind of differentiate where they want to go moving forward with those prospects. But Cooper and Johnson, I think, can help facilitate Atlanta's growth immediately. And I think they picture – they position themselves to be a part of Atlanta's future because they have a nice nucleus where their starters are what they are and their bench kind of mimic what their starters are trying to provide, which is an up-tempo team that's dynamic in the half court and present a variety of ways to be effective. And it's led by miniature guards who can keep the defense honest from deep and then also be proactive as finishers around the room and playmakers in that process. Yeah, I'm just I'm just not all the way sure that Sharif is going to play, you know, too, too much in year one. You know, you still got Lou Williams, too. And then they brought in DeLon Wright. I don't know what they'll end up doing there. But um, I if you watch my you, you've watched my videos, you know how much I like Sharif. And he fell to 48. I had him in my top 14. So uh, that's how I felt about him. But, yeah, you know, just going forward, I, I don't know. I just feel like if that opportunity presents itself, maybe, you know, things don't work out with, with Kawhi and, you know, he gets hurt again or something and Paul George becomes available, then they try to make a move there. Um, Jalen Johnson is a little – the pathway is just a little bit easier just given they have Gallo, they have uh, John Collins, but then you got that third guy you throw in there um, – possibly even at the five when Clint Capella isn't out there. Um, that makes just a little bit more sense. Because, um, you know, when you got Sharif, you have just one, like, time or moment you can really count on him and, and playing him because you don't really want Trey Young and Sharif Cooper out there at the same time. 
uh, defensively. And, you know, just given that he's still a work in progress as a shooter year two, I think that you can probably make that happen a little bit better. But, you know, early on, I'm, I'm just not sure. Um, I think, you know, would you like to have a guy like Sharif Cooper as a luxury off the bench? Absolutely. Will that end up happening? That's what I don't know. I, I'm not saying that I would just immediately be looking for trade opportunities because if he doesn't play, his trade value might not be very high anyways. Um, but I just think that that might end up happening, just given that they made the Eastern Conference Finals. They're looking to make that next step. They have Trey Young, a guy who's one of the best guards in the league, trying to get to, you know, ultimately the finals. Yeah, I understand you, Phil, and I, I agree with that. Um, after you get to a conference final, your perspective changes. Yeah. You're like, wow, we're really close. And now we're trying to get to the finals again. You saw what Phoenix was able to do. You even saw what Milwaukee was able to do because they were consistently uh, at the door and were being resisted by opposition. So it changed your outlook. You start trying to maximize that window the best you can because that window doesn't stay open forever. It stays longer in the NBA more so than like other sports, but doesn't stay long open wise forever. Um, I do feel like best case scenario for Cooper, kind of like that Tyrese Maxey type trajectory your rookie year, which is early on you get run, but not major PT, but eventually the coaching staff, which Doc Rivers is part of Philadelphia's coaching staff, they trust you because they see the play that you're able to accumulate throughout the season. In the playoffs, you get run and you have a moment or two where everybody remembers why you are valued as such a high commodity in the draft. And that's what Maxie was able to provide in the Washington series. And then in game six, when they were able to be in Atlanta, he was huge when Ben Simmons went incognito in that series there. Um, other gems to continue the process. I really did like Trey Murphy out of Virginia, what he's able to provide for the Pelicans. Uh, he averaged 16 points a game with seven rebounds, two assists, a steal, three 1.3 blocks. He obviously creates flexibility at that wing spot for the Pelicans. You see what Mikael Bridges was able to provide for the Suns. Murphy's that. Um, and just as impactful, a 3D guy that can come in. Uh, I feel like that's the type of player that they need, opposite of Zion Williamson. It makes Brandon Ingram even more expendable because I feel like the knock on Brandon Ingram is not the greatest spot-up shooter. He's not the greatest defender. He's a guy that needs the ball that seems to be productive at this point in his career. And because of that, you're basically getting – basically Ingram, in my opinion, he's a taller DeRozan. And I don't think you need a DeRozan-type player when you have opposite of him Zion, who demands the painted area to be productive as a humongous slasher. So how do you feel like the more Murphy's able to develop makes Ingram expendable but allows the Pelicans to kind of formulate a roster that coincides with Zion's skill set? Yeah, I think Trey Murphy can play – along both of them really well. I think he, he, you know, he doesn't need the ball as long as he continues to be this 40% shooter that we've seen him be, um, super versatile defender uh, across the board, then, you know, he can play with anybody in, in any, anywhere in this league. Now, the self-creation, I don't think that he's ever going to be, you know, this big time, you know, 25 points per game score. I think even Mikael Bridges had more of that coming in. Part of it is because he was at Virginia, but even when you look at what he did at Rice, um, that's just never been really a, a huge part of his game. Shows some of it. Um, I liked what he did as a, as a passer in summer league. But, yeah, I think he's he's just like the perfect role player that, that New Orleans needed. Now, the rest of the roster bringing in Devontae Graham, 
um, letting Lonzo Ball go. I didn't really like a lot of the other moves that they made, bringing Sadoransky and, and things like that. But, you know, with with Trey Murphy, I like Najee Marshall. Um, you know, obviously Zion. I think he and, and Ingram can work. Uh, they just take a little bit different of a, of a lineup around them than they've had in the past. But um, ultimately, I think they, they can they can make that work. Um, and then, you know, putting Trey Murphy in there, that's that's perfect uh, as long as he can continue to be effective and do pretty much the same thing that he did in summer league. That's not going to change. So I would I would expect a good rookie year for him. Yeah, yeah, look, I feel you. Uh, I do agree Trey Murphy's a guy. I think idealistically he can play alongside both Zion and Ingram because of his ability to shoot and then play really well off the ball. I think the biggest thing with Zion and Ingram, my skeptical – my skeptic nature for those two to coincide with each other is it's not like Ingram's like Jalen Brown, which is, you know, Jalen Brown's not a knockdown shooter either. He's very streaky, but he gets after defensively and he's well-rounded his game since he's come from Cal. Uh, and I feel like Ingram's done that since he's come from Duke, but doesn't really get after it defensively. Offensively can sometimes become a black hole. And I think the Pelicans, David Griffin, I think finally realized, I think moving forward, it's very important for Zion to feel comfortable in his role on the team and fully maximize his wavelength potential wise. And once you start hearing rumors of Ingram embracing maybe a transition to the heat or just Ingram embracing a transition that life outside New Orleans is a possibility, you got to be able to take his spot with somebody that can fit what you're trying to build culturally wise. And I do feel like Murphy's going to be able to provide that from a 3D standpoint. If he could just be another version of Mikel Bridges and Willie Green came from that Suns team and as being the head coach with the Pelicans now, that's something that I think will be even more impactful than what Ingram provides for them right now. I think the shot in the dark that they're making is their backcourt, basically scoring Bledsoe and Ball, and they're going all in on Alexander Walker and Kyra Lewis. How do you feel like that backcourt can probably translate moving forward? They were also able to re-sign Josh Hart as well to a very tricky deal where, you know, $12 million is guaranteed the first year but the next two years is not guaranteed, which allows the Pelicans to pivot off of him if it doesn't work out moving forward. Well, they've got Devontae Graham, so I think that's the guy that they're going to, you know, throw in there for the starter. I'm not sure Kyra Lewis is exactly ready for that. Um, he's been a little bit disappointing, kind of disappointed me a little bit in, in summer league. Um, felt like he could have been a little bit more assertive offensively, you know, just as a scorer. He did a solid job of setting his teammates up. But, um, you know, just looking at, you know, his, his uh, skill set, his speed, you know, what he showed at, at Alabama. But, yeah, you know, I think Nikhil Alexander-Walker, this is the year that he needs to make that, that leap for this all to kind of work um, a little bit better uh, as a scorer and everything like that. But, you know, I like Josh Hart. I didn't like Eric Bledsoe, so getting off of that, getting off of Steven Adams, that was a plus. That's the best thing that they did this offseason, giving Zion more room to work, giving even Ingram more room to work. So we'll get to see what they look like when there's not a Bledsoe out there where somebody's getting sucked in from there, where there's not Steven Adams right there beside you in the paint. Um, you do have Valanchunas, so there's a little bit of that still there, but uh, I think it'll be better um, overall. Um, but, yeah, you know, just I think – I think we'll just have to see the, what what the guard play does. You know, Thomas Sadoransky is probably going to play quite a bit. 
I would probably expect he plays more than Kyra early on. Um, but yeah, that's going to be a big key to watch um, uh, for them going forward. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you know this, um, but I find it really interesting. This was prior to when the Pelicans, well, not even prior. I think New Orleans probably knew deep down Lonzo was not a part of the future moving forward. Uh, they were going to hire Jacques Vaughn. And the biggest thing Griffin really told Vaughn was he wanted Vaughn to kind of start a backcourt of Kyra Lewis and Alexander Walker. He wanted those guys to be a starting backcourt. Um, obviously, Vaughn didn't get the gig. Willie Green got it. So even though Devontae Graham is in their plans and he got the extension, I do feel like Griffin's message, his vision, I think is still going to materialize sooner than later. So while they did pay Graham a lot of money, I think ideally Graham is going to be paid to be an off-the-bench six-man type volume scorer. And I think they want to tinker with how Lewis and Alexander Walker is going to be effective. And maybe Kyra's role in the summer league, I know you spoke about him not being super aggressive. Maybe they probably told Kyra moving forward, we really want to see you be a traditional point. We don't really need you getting 15 to 20 points a game. And this role that David Griffin's propositioning, your job is going to be able to feed and make sure Murphy's get quality looks, Zion gets quality looks, Ingram gets into his shot, and Alexander Walker as well. We need you to kind of be that half-court point guard aficionado that Lonzo never really can master. I feel like a lot of that had to do with not putting Lonzo in a position to be that. They really wanted him to be a spot-up shooter. But I think that's the world they want Kyra to be. We'll see how it works. Um, I was really high on Kyra Lewis coming out of Alabama. I like what he could bring to the table. We'll just have to see that former point guard that they want him to adapt to. He can be that with New Orleans. But that's what Griffin has wanted really leading up to the draft. I still see that probably being what it's going to be. Then it just comes down to can Kyra Lewis become that traditional point that they kind of want him to be and how him and Alexander Walker coincide with the rest of their front court. Yeah, we'll just we'll pretty much just have to to wait and see uh, what happens there um, in terms of that backcourt who separates himself early on in the season. For sure, indeed. Meanwhile, the Hornets they got Kai Jones, and they were also to get James Booknight. Um, I thought Booknight was kind of erratic throughout the summer league, and uh, why you also felt. With Atlanta, you feel like Sheree Cooper was there potentially to probably be a trade asset moving forward. I feel the same with Bogue Knight and Charlotte. I don't really see the fit of him and LaMelo kind of working, but I do see the fit of Kai Jones working with Charlotte. It seems pretty clear that they want a front court that's full of athletes. PJ Washington is an underrated athlete as a tweener. We know what Miles Bridges has really been able to do. How he looked at Michigan State and how he looked now is different. Completely slimmed. He's got even more bouncier, if that's even possible. But Kai Jones, his athleticism presents versatility as a four and a five. When you talked about him on film, he really reminded me a lot of Rashawn Holmes. But then you see his athleticism, and you can kind of see how if he puts everything together as a skill set offensive player, he can be that Siakam type. He can maybe be that Blake Griffin type. How impactful do you feel Kai can be within Charlotte, especially on a team where LaMelo, as gifted as a passer he is, he gets his lob threats, great looks at the rim. Yeah, Kai Jones, he'll be a little bit more of a work in progress. You know, there's some things that he still has to to work on. Um, Got to be more consistent as a three-point shooter. Uh, but you love the athleticism, the ability to get out in transition, playing with a guy like LaMelo Ball. That's perfect. Um, definitely who I thought they should have taken at, at their, you know, their lottery pick, but he kept falling. They got him uh, 
<clears throat> they got him later in the draft by trading up and they got uh James Booknight. So, you know, you you get good value out of that um on both ends, uh, in terms of talent. But yeah, so with you know, they brought in Kelly Oubre Jr., um, Mason Plumley. There's there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. But I think, you know, give him the year, be that energy guy, let him keep working on his body, let him you know, keep developing as a shooter, finding his spots where he fits in. And, you know, by year two, year three, then you start seeing, you know, the, the real growth from, from Kai Jones and recognizing that, that lottery type potential. I feel like me and you both probably thought that he had. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, Kai upside is immense. Um, I do feel like as he develops, he'll be a, a much more seamless fit. I feel like than book night. And I think with book night, the issue is, not a skill set. It's just the situation he's in. Doesn't make I, it doesn't make it any better that the Hornets decided to extend Rozier. Now, granted, the contract Rozier got is probably easy to pivot off of from a trade asset perspective. As Rozier continues to play at a solid clip with Charlotte, I think he's an asset they'll move to create that future backcourt of ball and book night. But the fear with book night, the shot selection, and being a willing playmaker. You're on a team where Melo is the star he is the focal point of the team and while Lamelo isn't as selfish as book night is um i do feel like for Melo to be effective you don't need a guy not just Melo, but for that whole team to be effective you don't need a guy to become a black hole a portal or when the ball gets to him he becomes ball dominant uh are you just as leery in terms of figuring out how book night fits in with this guard oriented lineup in charlotte or do you feel like over time his talent is just going to stand out the most and that alone will allow him to configure himself within the team. Yeah, I I like the the pairing a little bit more than you do. <clears throat> um, I thought that he was, you know, solid in the summer league. Defensively, I didn't like what he did. You know, there was times in person I saw him like arguing with the ref mid play and just letting people get back up by him. A little bit too nonchalant that uh, I would have liked on the defense. But offensively, you know, as a shot creator, somebody who's bringing, you know, little extra energy. Um, I really like him. And as an athlete, I think he has good potential. And I think he averaged about three and a half assists um, in the summer league. They weren't a very good summer league team, but, you know, it was a little bit, it was a lot better than what he showed at UConn. That wasn't exactly his role. And I liked seeing that, but with Rozier there, that's the issue. That's where the issue is, you know, locking him in. Um, in terms of money, they can, he is a tradable asset. And, you know, if the choice is letting him just go, you always, you know, you want to keep that asset, um, be able to get something out of it in the future. But, you know, early on, it's going to be at least a little weird because Rozier does a lot of the things that you would want, you know, the best, the best version of James Book Knight to do. So, you know, depending on the success of this team, it, it should be interesting to see. Um, I think they're pretty much putting James Booknight in the Malik Monk role from last year, which, you know, who knows what happens with that. You still got Gordon Hayward at the three. Um, Miles Bridges, you signed Kelly Oubre. There's a lot going on in there in the wing. So um, a potential three-guard lineup with Melo, Booknight, and Rozier, you know, that's not exactly something that, that might be as available as if they didn't, you know, just sign Oubre or have Gordon Hayward. But, um, you know, I guess we'll, we'll see what happens uh, with, with their lineups. Um, I think this team is 
going to be at least ready to to make some sort of a leap. I think if Gordon Hayward was healthy last year, they they get things going a little bit better. Um, obviously, Devontae Graham isn't there anymore. I think that is that can be a good thing. I think they with Lamella Ball getting a little bit more responsibilities, uh, eating up some of those minutes. Devontae Graham, mainly just an energy guy. Um, in my opinion, he hasn't shot 40% in his career yet. Uh, shoots a lot of deep threes, so people think he's just a little bit better than he actually is. Um, but, yeah, that's pretty much you know how I feel about the Hornets going forward. Kai Jones, Book Knight. Um, like what they did in the draft, uh, getting both of them. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, man, I, I agree. They're going to be a fun team, but they're a weird For team sure. in terms of how they're designed. Yeah. Uh, you said Book Knight probably is going to take the Malik Monk role. I think he's going to take the Devontae Graham role. I think he's going to be their guy off the bench that's going to come in and fill it up. Uh, I just feel like everything really hinges on health of Hayward. And then I think now the development of Ball and Bridges. I think Ball. I think for this team to achieve the postseason, I think Melo has to be an all-star, and I think Miles Bridges has to win most improved. And I, I know that sounds probably a little bit unfair since Melo's in his second year and Miles Bridges is so promised, but he's not in a position where you might think he can be most improved. But I say that because they're a weird orchestrated team where they're kind of locked in in terms of this is how, like, this is their core. Like, this is how they define their team to be. They're going to be a team that's going to be exciting in transition, They'll be a little bit more functional than a lot of traditional athletic teams like others have been built like because Melo's such a great passer. But, you know, there are a bunch of athletes that can kind of shoot the basketball not particularly well. And they got some guards that can kind of, when the play breaks down, they have court create their own shot off the bounce. And, you know, what, what James Perego is able to provide for them as the head coach is going to be interesting. But they're a weird team because they got a lot of tweeners. I still feel like they're a little bit undersized. I think getting plumbing helps. They're not going to be the greatest defensive team because their backcourt just doesn't have willing defenders. Uh, you know, Ball has the measurables. You know, Rozier has the ability, but they're not the most willing. And then on the wing, I think that's the biggest question. They don't have, like, an impactful wing. And I do feel like the way the game is kind of progressing, you don't really need an impactful wing as much anymore. I think point guard plays becoming more important in the new NBA that's coming through. But, you know, Kelly Oubre had a really hot and cold year with Golden State, and they gave him a lot of money. So it's going to be interesting to see what he can provide. And the biggest thing with Hayward is health. I think if Hayward stays healthy, they're a playoff team. If, you know, Ball's able to develop into that all-star and Bridges is able to take that most improved leap. If not, I see this team being entertaining, but middle of the road. And like we talked about with those other young teams, they achieved the play-in success. So now it's got to be kind of postseason aspirations or busts. But they're in a kind of tricky position where it wouldn't be shocking if they don't achieve that. Yeah. In terms with going back to the the Malik Monk role, I meant more like in terms of like where he scores on the court and like gets the ball. I don't think that he's gonna just be handling the ball. They got Ish Smith, he'll probably do a a good amount of you know ball handling off the bench, you know, making plays. Always Ish Smith seems to always keep a contract in the in the NBA, uh, just because of his speed and ability to create uh pressure on the rim um but yeah you know you you made some good points I think I think it's a safer bet that Melo takes you know a bit of a leap maybe not all-star I feel like there's a good chance he could get voted in like as a starter just because he's so popular um but he'll probably be like a fringe guy 
especially if Harden, KD, Kyrie are all healthy. You know, there's a lot of – you got Tatum and Brown. It starts getting real, you know, difficult. Giannis, Middleton, Drew, like, starts getting real difficult to make that team. But, um, but yeah, you know, Miles Bridges, hopefully he gets the same opportunities he got last year, made big improvements. Uh, but, yeah, like you said, it's going to it's gonna take, you know, some health, you know, a couple, couple guys taking a, a bit of a leap, maybe P.J. Washington as well. Um, hopefully PJ Washington, you got to see that next contract. That's a different story. Um, uh, but yeah. Yeah. Moving on to, uh, Jalen Suggs and Chris Dorte. You're right about PJ though. It's tough times ahead for that guy, <laughs> but, uh, for Jalen Suggs, man, he's in a night, he's in a unique spot because, you know, just from one team with guard situations, another team magic are saturated with guards, but, you know, what Suggs was able to do in the summer league was impressive. 15 a game, point scoring-wise, six rebounds, two assists, 1.5 steals. He said during the summer league, doesn't matter where he plays in the backcourt, he's just going to be an effective player. Um, but I thought his duality was important because he showcased an ability to be a competent one and a solid enough two. I think it's just going to come out to as consistent as he is as a shooter is going to dictate how effective he'll be as a two-guard. Um, I think we all expect Cole Anthony to be the one. Um and that guard conundrum that the Magic have, they're in a spot where now they can officially embrace a rebuild because now all they have is all the young prospects they've accumulated through their draft, through other trades and whatnot. They're now going to get to see who stands out the most in their rebuilding core. Where do you see Suggs fitting in in their backcourt moving forward? Is he a one or do you see him being a two-guard for this team? Yeah, I think, you know, Right now, I'd probably put the ball in his hands and just say go. Um, I, you know, there's, I probably, I don't know. There's a lot you can, there's a lot of directions you can go with, you know, the combination of the other guards. You, you know, you might, you might, depending on where, where Markel Fultz has, has developed as a shooter, I'd probably go with him and Jalen Suggs, let them handle the ball handling responsibilities as starters and just let Cole Anthony rock out off the bench, um, do a little bit more things as, as uh, offensively and just have a little bit more freedom. I think that makes sense for him having RJ uh, in that lineup too, just running and gunning. Um, not that they're going to be a great team um, by any means this, this first year or, or so, but you know, Jalen Suggs ability to impact games, it's not going to always show up on the stat sheet, but you know, at his size, he's about 6'4", 6'5", he's strong. He's one of those guys who looked a lot bigger in person to me. Um, I think he'll be able to hold his own defensively against wings, more so than I thought, you know, watching him on the tape at, at Gonzaga. And, you know, like you said, if he can, if he can, you know, keep improving as a jump shooter, keep improving, putting pressure on defenses as a scorer, I think that you've got a guy who can, you know, be a cornerstone for your, for your team going forward. Um, and you just build off of, you know, hopefully Jonathan Isaac can stay healthy going forward. You know, that's a big if, but you know, you know what he can do when he's, when he's healthy. And then, you know, you've got guys like Mo Bamba, uh, Wendell Carter that you, you want to get a lot out of. So just playing around with the guard lineups. That's just what I do early on, but that's probably, who I would start with, you know, and you, then you, maybe you throw, you know, Cole Anthony out there, 
maybe if Markel plays really well, maybe there's a trade out there for something to get things just a little bit more um, defined. And then you just work from there. Yeah, Orlando, you're right. Orlando, I think this is unique because the last few years, they had a lot of vets on their squad. And with those vets on their squad, they were at AC in the East. Clear that out in particular. But I think what was very evident last season, they started off, uh, excuse me, started off 4-0. And the main reason why they started off undefeated was Markel Fultz played pretty well. And he got hurt. And after he got hurt, they they were done. Like, they never really could capture that early season progress that they had. So they gave Fultz and Isaac similar deals. Three years, both are going to be coming off of injuries. So I think they factor into, I think Isaac more so factors into the rebuild because of his versatility and offensive upside more than Fultz. I think as Fultz develops and regains confidence again at post-injury, he'll become a more tradable asset. But because of that, that'll make, depending on how Fultz comes back in camp and whatnot, he'll start alongside Suggs. And Isaac will fill out the wing with Okiki, who's also on the team, and Mo Bamba. This is a very athletic team. And, you know, John Hammond was a part of that Milwaukee unit that took Giannis and whatnot. So he's more of a guy known to go out to the best athlete available and kind of make the inner athlete learn the fundamentals of basketball. And they'll kind of formulate it to a more complete player for his team. I think the biggest question marks we're going to find out with the Magic are how good is Mo Bamba? Because we've never really seen him in a permanent starter role at all during his young career? Is he a lottery caliber talent? And then from there, you just want to see how Isaac and Fultz are able to come back from the injuries and be factors within the game. I think we kind of both know Suggs is going to come in and be a high-level, all-rookie type talent. We don't think that's going to be anything less. I think the mystery is going to be Bamba. What is he as a starter? Isaac, what is he post-injury? Fultz, what is he post-injury? I think as the Magic figure those things out, that'll help start realizing how they should position this rebuild. Should this rebuild factor in Isaac and Fultz, Isaac or Fultz, or maybe Fultz or Isaac, including Bama as well. And I think that'll help manifest into what that'll be moving forward. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, it's, a little, it's a little weird if you're a Magic fan, but it's also nice to get out of that middling position and know you are in rebuild mode and not just – scraping scratching and clawing to get the eight seed and maybe win a game against Toronto in the first round you know facts on facts I agree with that as well uh Indiana with Chris Duarte uh he reminded me a lot of like a more complete Devin Booker I know that's extreme to say considering what Booker's been able to provide scoring but he could do it all he averaged 18 a game in the summer league had 3.8 rebounds he also had four assists shot 48 percent from deep that's very important um, I think now with Dorte on Indiana at his age at 24, I think not a competition, not the competition, the conversation needs to be how quickly he positions himself to be a starter on a team that I think everybody recognizes with an improved coach and health willing is probably a top five to six team in the East. Do you see Dorte starting alongside Brogdon sooner than later with Indiana as we head into the next season? You know, I'm not sure. I think he probably comes off of the bench, definitely to start. Um, I really like Levert, uh, especially when healthy. If if everybody can stay healthy, which is a big if with like all the people on this team, you got Miles Turner, Brogdon, uh, Levert, all got had serious foot issues uh, in the past. Um, but if they can stay healthy, build around Sabonis, uh, maybe make a move or two. 
you got, like you said, somebody, a team that can be a definite, you know, top six team in the East. But, you know, for Duarte, I think that, you know, you don't have to have any expectations for him. He's just going to come in. He's going to do his job really well. And, you know, depending on where they decide to go as an organization, you've got a guy who, who is going to contribute. Um, he was really good in the summer league. Like he didn't do anything really flashy. I mean, besides like the buzzer beaters that he had, but just pulling up from, from deep, just the confidence, the off ball play. He's got to calm down a little bit on some of those gambles he had for steals, but you know, other than that, like he's a really complete player. And I think that's what you, you really expected. If he would have struggled, that would have been kind of a bad look. Even if he, you know, you would have worried, even if he ended up writing the ship in the regular season, but at that age, he did what he was supposed to do. And, you know, if you're, you're a Pacers fan, you got to be, be happy with who you got. I agree as well. Um, You're right. I think at that age, um, how long he's been playing basketball, um, I think a struggle would have been alarming, but he played so well. I think in my head, I started to think, I think now it's time to have the conversation of he could factor in the starting lineup sooner than later with Indiana. And Indiana, the draft pick they made with him, even the draft pick they made with Isaiah Jackson, the transaction they had there, the moves that they made or didn't make, re-signing McConnell, keeping Miles Turner after a lot of people thought they were trading. They're another team in the East, I think, saw the success of not just Atlanta, but New York. And it's like, we're just as good, if not better, roster-wise than those guys. We just need health willing and a better coach because Nate Bjorn just didn't resonate with those guys at all last year. So you put Carlisle in with the leadership. They're thinking playoffs, and they're also thinking being effective while there. They haven't got out of the first round since the Paul George days. So with Roy Hibbert and David West. So I think with Indiana, they're in a good spot. Uh, I think now it's just health, I think. Turner has to stay healthy. Brodden has to stay healthy. But I think Duarte is a guy where he can factor himself in with quality minutes and play particularly well. And I think that's what they need in Indiana. I think if you look at the roster, as herky-jerky as Levert and TJ Warren can be, everybody else is solid in their role. Sabonis is a solid player. Brodden is a solid player. Duarte is a solid player. And I know the common denominator has always been to win a championship, you know, all-star superstar caliber player I don't think Indiana has that at all but with those type of players that they have on the roster this is a team they draw the right matchup they can win a playoff series I think they could beat a Boston um they could beat a Miami they could beat um even uh an Atlanta if it, if it draws the right way because they're solid they play really well they have a coach that's going to get the best out of them in Carlisle and I think that's what they need in the east yeah I agree you know if they can, they can put this together. Rick Carlisle, you know, work some of his magic. They all get working on the same page defensively. Then, you know, this should be a tough team. They got a lot of talent. That's why, you know, a lot of, I was disappointed in them last year as a team. I know they had injuries and things like that. Um, maybe there's some questions about the Sabonis Turner fit and things like that. Maybe they make a move, but you know, the talent is there. So they've got to, they've got to be able to, you know, build on that and really, become that that competitive team that we saw the year the year prior and uh you know just make some noise make some noise indeed and last but not least in the other gyms uh Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody were selected by the Golden State Warriors I think we all thought the 7 and 14 pick I personally thought best case scenario best thing that the Warriors could do is keep the picks draft guys that they can 
not only have on their team to participate in that one last hurrah for a championship, but kind of Spurs-esque, have guys as Curry and Clay head to the twilight of their careers. You have young guys that could come in and carry the torch once it's passed. Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody, I think, were the best picks they could get. Um, when I saw Kaminga um, with the Ignite, um, the film thing that you were able to put out video-wise on YouTube, first thing that popped to my mind is he's Jalen Brown. Like He's literally a jump shot away from being an all-star. He can get to wherever he wants, driving the basketball. He can finish with both hands. The defensive measurables are there. It's just about being consistent, shooting the basketball for him. I think that's the most important thing. But he can do it all, I think, from a driving the basketball standpoint. It's phenomenal. And then I always feel like Moses Moody was the perfect fit for Golden State. He's Harrison Barnes 2.0. He can shoot the basketball particularly well from three. He can move without the basketball very well. And then he can also have the basketball in his hands and be effective off the dribble, as well as be proactive defensively. How impactful do you feel like these guys can be for Golden State this season? And if they stay in the fold with the Warriors moving forward, how much of a mainstay they can be in terms of being a part of Golden State's future? Yeah, I love the picks. Um, if you anybody who's watched my channel, they know I, I love Moses Moody's game. Um, really like that he landed in Golden State. And then, you know, Kaminga, just the, the raw talent that he has. Um, like you said, he's getting a lot of a lot of Jalen Brown comparisons um, warranted. I think he's, you know, I think Jalen Brown's just a little bit of a, a quicker, more more effective uh, lateral athlete than uh, than Kaminga. But there's a lot of similarities there. But, yeah, you know, in year one, I don't. I'm not 100% sure what they're going to do rotation-wise. You've still got Jordan Poole, I think, makes a leap um, here. You've got Andrew Wiggins, Otto Porter Jr. they brought in, you know, Juan T. Um, Clay Thompson's going to come back. So, uh, Damian Lee. Uh, so, there's a lot. Didn't they get – I think they got Iguodala back too. So, there's a lot going on in terms of wings. But I would be trying to – get them as many reps as possible. I think that they're better than some of those guys. Um, but, you know, that the, the whole strategy <clears throat> for trying to build for the future while chasing the championship, we'll see how effective it is. But um, you can't go wrong with getting two wings as talented, uh, regardless of what happens. You know, maybe Clay doesn't come back the same guy. So, you know, you might have to, you know, pivot immediately. So. That's just kind of what you got to what you got to do. I agree as well. Uh, just find out Clay Thompson. Uh, he's going to come back around Christmas. That's the target date. So that means the rookies, the lottery picks that they just got will factor into the rotation a lot more immediately than expected. Um, I think the biggest question for this team is I, I think Moody's going to be a seamless fit. I actually think he's going to be an impactful rotational guy for them coming off the bench because He's literally like what they had in Harrison Barnes for years. So I think that's going to be effortless. Kaminga, not so much. Uh, jump shot just isn't there. So I think you're going to have to pick spots where he'll be effective on the floor. And I think they'll probably be in lineups where Draymond's not there, but Curry is with a lot more shooting, whether that's pool, even Juan T to a degree as well, because I feel like he can shoot the ball a lot better than Kaminga. Um, but I think the, Best case scenario for Golden State is Kaminga has this rookie season where he develops a lot more quickly than people consider him to do, and he takes Andrew Wiggins in spot. But I think Golden State's in a 
that Golden State did the right thing. I, I know they really wanted Bradley Beal, but Bradley Beal decided to stay in Washington. Uh, it's weird. But so they really wanted him. And with that, I think that was the best thing that could happen because I think they're in this mentality where they feel like they're still Golden State from four years ago, and I don't think they are. I think they can make one more championship push. But this team reminds me a lot of that San Antonio Spurs team that won their last ring where Kawhi was the finals MVP. And then after that, they never really got back to the finals. They got back to the conference finals, but they never really got back to win a uh, Larry O'Brien. So they're in a lot better yeah, situation. They need to – they have to find their their Kawhi, you know, transitioning into that, that superstar. Maybe get yes. it LaMarcus Aldridge. That's the, that's the pivot. That is the pivot indeed. And maybe that LaMarcus Aldridge could be Kaminga. I mean, he's, he's special. Like, he's literally a jump shot away. That's how – fluid he is as a player but I think Moody factors in effortlessly as a 3 and D guy Kaminga the development process is going to be there uh last but not least with that Warriors team it's all on James Wiseman I think at this point uh what happened his rookie year was unfortunate I feel like a lot of stuff was like outside of his control I, I do think it was more so of a like an energy type fit because I feel like it put Wiseman in this light where I think a lot of people may have looked at Wiseman as immature but I just feel like it was a clash of ideals I think Wiseman probably came in thinking, I have talent. I feel like I should probably factor more so in this in this offense. He wasn't. They were kind of coming at him like, he used to be this Warriors guy through and through. It never really happened. Now he's coming off of, I think, a torn meniscus. Uh, how do you see Wiseman factoring in year two to Golden State? Does he have a more controlled imprint on this offense? Or do you see it sadly being more of the same where – He's moonlighting as what they want him to be, which is a traditional Warriors big in this Curry-Kerr era, which is run the floor, be a lob threat, which I think prohibits what he can truly do as a five-man in the league. Yeah, so it was always a very weird situation for him to go into, you know, the Warriors still, because at the draft day, that's when Clay got hurt again. So that kind of threw things off a little bit. There was – People were overthinking LaMelo a little bit too much. And then now LaMelo blossoms into this star. Then Wiseman has the year he has, has the injury issues. It's all kind of a, it's all kind of unfair to him. Like he didn't ask to be put in this situation. I'm sure he would have much rather been in a place where he could have gotten some of those reps, you know, in the mid post, you know, being able to really work through some of his lower body uh, deficiencies, you know, being pushed around just a little bit you know, while still giving you that lob threat, um, maybe not having to spread his game out all the way to the three-point line sometimes when Draymond Green is in there because nobody is guarding him um, outside of the free throw line. So I don't know, you know, if if he can improve on the things that just some of those basic things from his rookie year that he, he struggled at, he had some good moments. Um, and I think people kind of forget that when they talk about him. But if he has a lot of talent, so just – Hopefully he has the space, the time. It's just always going to be a weird fit next to Draymond. That's just what it is for Biggs because um, he can't shoot and he won't shoot most of the time. So that's, that's you know, that just makes things a little bit tougher. Yeah, the Draymond thing is it's the issue. Uh, Draymond and Kerr. Uh, on the floor, Draymond is limited as an offensive player. He can't shoot the basketball. He can still somewhat defend particularly well, but not the elite clip he usually does. And I think the biggest thing that no one's factoring in 
it's his mouth. He, he talks a lot. He yells a lot. And I think Wiseman put up with it at first. But I think over time, Wiseman was kind of like, look, man, you yelling at me like I'm not doing anything out here. And I'm really kind of not only doing the dirty things that you usually used to do, but I'm also help facilitating in the fact that I'm replacing the point total you're not putting out. So there was that factor, I think, that no one's really considering. And then I think the other factor was Kurt didn't do him any favors because he was kind of hard on him in terms of like, this is the warrior way. You're not participating. Right. So we're going to kind of, and it was also kind of like, you're not our traditional golden state guy. Yeah. You're homegrown because we picked you, but you're like a luxury asset that we kind of don't need. So we kind of need you to fit in this role that we normally have had with other guys like Damian Jones, Javel McGee, Andrew Bogut. You're not playing like that. So we're going to discard you. I always felt like golden state made it clear. They were chasing after the small ball, you know, error that they had when they won their first championship. And that's truly what they wanted. They should have took mellow ball, regardless if Clay got hurt or not, because he's going to fit that persona that you're aiming after more so than Wiseman. They took Wiseman. So that means they're not chasing that anymore. So that means now you have to kind of placate through Wiseman's skill sets more so, which may mean pivoting off of Draymond Green. Now we're hearing Ben Simmons is an option. Ben Simmons also can't shoot either, but he's much more offensively aggressive than Draymond is at this point of his career and is a better defender than Draymond. So I, I think Draymond's the issue. You got to get rid of him to allow Wiseman to blossom. We'll see what they do there. Yeah, so, yeah, it's just a weird thing because it's like Draymond is good. He impacts winning. Um, can't deny that at this point. He's not the same player he was in 2016, that's for sure. But he's still a solid player. I think he will continue to be for the next, you know, two, three years. But, you know, when you get when you bring Wiseman in, you need to change the way you play just a little bit. I know you guys won three championships or whatever, but if we're going to, if we're going to do this, don't, you can't get upset. You can't place these expectations on a guy like Wiseman and not give him the opportunities that he needs. You know, that's why you take LaMelo ball. Worst, worst case scenario, he doesn't fit. They're too bad defensively. You know, things don't work out, but his ability to allow Steph to play off the ball, make plays for, for somebody else, even if Clay Thompson is there or, or not, um, that makes a lot more sense. And then you can go get your, you know, JaVale McGee, your, you know, there's 30 of them in the league. You can go find one who's going to, you know, Damian, Damian Jones. He, he did a great job at, at doing that while he was in Golden State. Now, he's not a great player, but when you're around, you know, people who make plays for others, you're going to be able to do your job at a, at a good level um, if that's what you want to do. But if, if it's not, if you're going to try to keep doing the same things, then you can't place those type of expectations and you can't expect you know some of these rookies some of these young guys to really flourish in, in that scenario yeah I agree totally um and I feel like in this draft they got guys that fit what they want uh Moody is a warrior player so makes sense uh yeah. Kaminga even as he develops is a warrior player because he's a guy that could defend he's athletic he's a wing and so he's a wing that's athletic with defensive capabilities he won't clog the lane as much like a Wiseman could, because Wiseman needs the ball, I think, to be much more impactful. He's so talented. He's much more than just a rim runner and a screen setter and just a lob threat. And that's something they're going to have to figure out. Um, and it's just unfortunate because Charlotte, a lot of people don't remember this, during the draft, were, were willing to trade up with the Warriors to get Wiseman. They really wanted Wiseman. They didn't want Melo. They wanted Wiseman. And Golden State took that opportunity from him. Charlotte got Melo worked out for Charlotte hasn't worked out well for Golden State so 
I think that's something they got to figure out moving forward. Um, I think they will. I think it just really comes down to how Wiseman looks at it and how Kerr looks at it. I think if Kerr looks at it as we have this unique talent that we can accumulate into our offense, assimilate rather, and he could be productive when we play K through his strengths, it'll be fine. If Wiseman comes in motivated, it'll also be fine. And I think they'll be able to figure that out. You just really got to hope he comes back healthy. Yeah. And then, you know, just the other half of that is like, if you're, it, it makes sense. Like why, why Steve Kerr might feel a different way. Cause it's like, you know, we just won all these championships. We're trying to get back. Like there's been so many injuries. They haven't even had their full team there at the same time. So they're still kind of in winning mode, but it's like, if we're going to pick Wiseman, you got to do this, but I understand why you would feel a certain different way, but you can't blast him in the media. If he's not doing this, you're not giving him certain opportunities that he might need or make his game easier as a player, you know, as he tries to, you know, fit into the system somewhat. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It should, it should be interesting. I do like the wings though. Um, Mo- Moody and, um, and Kaminga uh, in the system, but yeah. Yeah. I like them too. Um, I, I do think for this to work tempering expectations. And I think it starts with uh, the front office, the head coach, and then the core three, I think, you can win it. You can want to win a championship, but I think realizing that I think what the Spurs did really well, and which is why they were so like playoff participants for the like past 20 something years, the mindset wasn't just championship. It was like trying to get better every game, trying to find new ways to reinvent ourselves for every game. And then when you're in the playoffs, it became trying to reinvent yourselves every game to win a series. And like your mindset can't just be chip. Day one. Like, I mean, obviously you're thinking chill, but you're thinking how can we get better throughout this 82-game season because it's a long year. And I think that's the mindset they got to go to, reinventing yourself every day to make sure everybody's a part of the glue to get to where we need to go instead of thinking we won some championships, so we're going to continue to play how we play because that's how we win championships. Every season's different. Every team's different. That's how they need to go look at that moving forward. I think that's the biggest thing that they need to do. Now, second year stalwarts, I'm going to really bounce upon this a little quickly before we go to the last topic. Uh, Obi Toppin, Tyrese Maxey, Desmond Bain, Aaron Neesmith, Peyton Pritchard, all second year guys that really need this summer league atmosphere to be productive. Um, The guy I was really, really impressed with was Toppin and Neesmith. They kind of shocked me because I thought Toppin coming into the league his rookie year, I think Tibbs really got on him for not being the most defensively accountable uh, his shooting wasn't very, you know, impactful. But he came into the summer league. He was really aggressive on the boards. His spacing was phenomenal in terms of how he was able to shoot the ball. He averaged 21 and 8. Shot 44% from the field, 34% from three. Uh, I think it's it's realistic to think that the Knicks have improved their roster from a year ago. Um, it's still phenomenal how much they were able to get to the playoffs, really just off of being the best defensive team in basketball because they really weren't scoring like that consistently. They sacrifice that defense in the backcourt for offense. You get Kimball Walker, you get Evan Fournier, so they'll be better, I think, scoring. I think that'll allow Randall to be a third option, which I think at this point in his career he'll be much better in than being the number one option. R.J. Barrett's development has been solid and has been going under notice, not noticed at all. Um, so Tom is going to factor in with that second unit phenomenally. Um, how much do you feel like that summer league play he had would translate to his productivity when the games count in year two? Yeah, I liked what Obi Toppin did, especially, you know, 
stretching his game out. I knew that was going to have to be something that he did um, coming out of Dayton, especially playing alongside Julius Randle, you know, Mitchell Robinson when healthy. Um, got to be a little bit more perimeter oriented. Still got some work to do defensively. Obviously, that'll be something that he always has to place an emphasis on. But, you know, overall, it was a really good showing for him and a bounce back from what was a rough <clears throat> rookie year for, you know, the lottery pick. Uh, but, yeah, I think he can, he can definitely carry this into the year for the Knicks and, and be a contributor. Yeah, I, I do as well. Um, I, the aggression was key. Um, and he was also athletically fluid, much more athletically fluid in the summer league than he was his first year. It just felt like he was stiff at times, felt like he was uncertain, felt like he was second-guessing his jumps, which you never really questioned in his last year at Dayton. Always knew it was going to be a transition because he was a tweener. So the biggest thing I was really wondering for him is could he elongate his game from be to beyond the arc? And then athletically, could he be able to match up well with taller bigs, which is – match their height with his athleticism. He was able to do that in the summer league, and I feel like that will translate next season. Also, his role won't be as – it'll be bigger, but I think it'll be with the second unit. I think the five is established for the Knicks. I think his starting unit is going to be Walker, Fournier, Barrett, Randall, Robinson. That's your five. And I think in the second unit, you'll see the likes of Quigley, who played really well in the summer league, and Toppin kind of surface themselves alongside Alec Burks. So, like I said, the Knicks – I didn't think they could really improve their roster any much more than they did. They did really getting some moves in free agency. You had to overpay some guys, but getting some nice value picks as well. I think they'll be in a much better spot there. Um, Neesmith, I thought was impressive for Boston. We all knew coming out of Vanderbilt, he could shoot. He shot very well in the league, summer league, I might add. But his off-the-bounce game was promising, and he was a lot more assertive and aggressive, had a performance where – scored 30-plus points, hit seven threes. How do you like his gameplay and how much will it factor for a Boston squad where I always felt that holding them back, especially last year, was their second unit. They didn't have much depth outside of their starting five, which meant when guys like Brown and Smart broke down, they were done for. How much will Neesman help shore up that second unit depth for them this season? Yeah, I think he can step in and be that floor space and wing that, you know, every – Every team needs, you know, take a little bit of the pressure off of, you know, guys like Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, keep that, you know, Dennis Schroeder, keep that floor spaced for them, um, heat up in a hurry. You know, seeing him at Vanderbilt, he was one of the biggest things that, like, I didn't like about him. He was super stiff and, you know, he couldn't dribble more than three times without turning it over. Um even attacking the basket sometimes, he just fall down, things like that. I liked him as a prospect. So still, you know, love that shooting ability. Um, but he just looks so much better now, even just a year and a half removed or whatever it's been. Um, well, I guess it's only been a year, huh, uh, since he just got drafted. But, yeah, a year and a half since he played. So um, I like the improvements that he's made, and, and I think that he's ready to really contribute in, in an area that they've they've really needed. Yeah, that core, Neesmith, Pritchard, Lankford, maybe even Carson Edwards, I think that's going to be their second unit core. And, you know, their head coach, uh, he's going to challenge them defensively, of course. But I think it's really important for Boston, uh, like I stated before, finding that, that nucleus depth-wise. And I think Neesmith shooting will help Pritchard's 
um, on-ball duties. He almost averaged, I think, seven-plus assists a game in the summer league. I think that's a preview to what he'll be required to do with the second unit this year with Boston. Um, Romeo Lakeford had the highlight reel dunk. Um, I think at this point of his career basketball-wise, what he'll be as a pro is going to be much different than what he was coming out of high school and even with Indiana. I think they're going to really expect him to be a defensive first type guy that's going to be a slasher, hopefully a spot-up shooter. But I think for Boston, the depth just materializes is important. And I stated that before. Hopefully it's able to do so for them this year. And then guys like Desmond Bain and Tyrese Maxey, I think added further emphasis to file their first year. It's just a preview of how impactful they'll be their second year. Um, Bain is going to be a guy I think we both expect. He's going to take over that starting small four spot for the Memphis. And what he's able to do as a shooter and a defender is phenomenal. And then whatever they decided to do in Philly with Simmons, I think if they get Lillard, cool. They don't get Lillard and they trade Simmons to just get like a McCollum. That'll allow Maxie to step in as a point guard, a starter. I think he's ready for that. Much more aggressive, much more fluid, much more uh, assertive in terms of being a playmaker. How do you feel like those two guys fit in with their respective units as they head into year two? Yeah, Desmond Bain, you know, he was someone who I I felt dropped way too far, even with the age or even with the, you know, I guess that was the main concern. I guess some of the length um, was another concern, just given his negative wingspan. That was such a weird thing to see. Um, but, yeah, next to Ja, perfect. I love it. Um, I think that, you know, while Memphis might have taken a step back this year in terms of roster, they still have a lot of pieces to go in the right direction um, in the future. And with Maxi, <clears throat> whether it's with Ben Simmons, whether it's with Embiid, I think he's ready to contribute. We saw, you know, it's not a lot of rookies, regardless of how good they end up becoming, who score 40 in a game in their rookie season. Uh, I guess he had 39. But, yeah, you know, just playing alongside, playing off of them. I liked what he did leadership-wise, taking some of those other young guards under his wing. Um, just the scoring ability, the energy that he brings to the court. Um, I think it'll help Philly next year. That indeed, that indeed. And last but not least, before we wrap up this long but entertaining podcast with me and Hoop Intellect, I uh, want to see here your preview for the NBA draft 2022. Uh, we'll finally have a season, albeit let's see what things happen in the world, where fans will be able to participate and view the games. So that's going, to prov- that's going to provide a new type of atmosphere. Well, not a new, but a traditional type of atmosphere we're accustomed to seeing. Uh, name your five guys you're, you're already highlighting as key individuals that will potentially be guys to look out for as people prepare for the 2022 NBA draft. Yeah, so the first guy that, you know, I still need to do like a good amount of research on, you know, some of these guys. Still watch a lot of film. Um, I've seen him play in the past and everything like that, but, you know, just getting them up-to-date look at them and everything like that. But the first guy is Paolo Bantro, um, out of Duke. He's a 6'10", you know, forward, can score from, you know, all over the court. He's going to be in contention for that top pick next year. Um, you know, just being, being able to add some more skill on the perimeter, just watching him, I think, you know, Duke is going to be a really competitive team next year. It's Coach K's last ride. Um, and he's going to be at the, at the helm of that. And the, the next guy that I think, you know, a lot of people have already heard of 
and I've already, you know, created a lot of buzz around is Chet Holmgren. He's a tall, lanky, you know, shot blocker, you know, ball handler, moves super fluidly for his size. You know, a lot of people are enticed by that. It goes to Gonzaga. Um, they're going to try to, you know, make another run at it. Still got a lot of talent from that returning uh, national champ uh, runner-up team. Um, he was the MVP of the U19 team who just won the um, USC, U USA World Cup. So, you know, he's got a lot of potential skills. I still have some reservations about him as a prospect that I, I want to see, but, you know, talent is there. The next guy is Jaden Hardy. Now, Jaden Hardy is with the G League Knights, so we get another uh, crack at that to see, you know, what those what those prospects end up doing. But, you know, he's a he's somebody who's wired to score, super athlete guard. Um, he reminds me a little bit of Anthony Edwards in his game. Uh, even some of the flaws, just the way he, he kind of plays. I think he's got, you know a little bit of a better background in terms of like passing the ball, but the, the decisions aren't, aren't all the way there, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what he does. I like him a lot, even though, you know, his potential stock could go up or down just based on how he, how he performs. Um, another one on, you know, uh, Purdue, Jaden Ivy, he was on that U19 team as well. Brings a lot of energy, ton of defensive ability, um, I really like him a lot. I think he's going to have a great season in college basketball. And I'd be pretty surprised if he doesn't end up as a top 10 pick. Um, maybe even make a serious case for the top five. If he can improve as a shooter, he shot about 26% last year. He, he heated up towards the end, but I just want to see what he can do over, over a full season span. But he's going to be in the running. Then the last one is another Duke guy, you know, A.J. Griffin, you know, one of those top recruits. He's dealt with some injuries in the past, but, you know, he's about 6'7", super athlete. Um, you know, we haven't seen him play in a while just because of those injuries. But him and Banchero, you know, at, at Duke, they're going to make serious noise and I think be sent off, send, send, send Coach K off in, in the right way and, you know, Elevate to the NBA, be his last, you know, like top tier NBA guys, you know, the, the Tatums, the 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 Ingrams, though, in that type of mold. Yeah, uh, all those individuals you just stated uh, before we did this podcast, kind of check a preview of like Breach Report, their top five picks, prospects to look out for, and all those guys you listed, with the exception of Jay and Ivy, who I do remember from the tournament when he was with Purdue, do remember from the World Cup matchup that they had uh this past summer they were up there um now no skinny with duke is for the sake of pablo and aj you just hope that coach k is able to find a way to where they play to their strengths while sustaining a solid stock that they have coming into the year my knock with coach k has always been the one and done stuff hasn't worked for him because he's found a really hard way of kind of creating a dynamic to where you don't fully appease to the star players, but you allow them to play in roles that may not coincide with your traditional game plan that you've had for years, but they kind of coincide within their skill set. I think he was able to do that with Zion and RJ Barrett. I don't think he did that very well with Cam Reddish. So that's the intrigue there. But then with Chet Holgram, now these next two drafts, we're in the process of Chet Holgram 
and Amani Bates, two guys that a lot of people look at as generational talents coming up in the ranks draft-wise. Now we get to see a guy in Holgram, his size, his skill set, is starting to become the modern-day type player where you're seven-foot front court player that can do it all, that's versatile, has the foot speed, the skill set to shoot from beyond. The biggest thing with Holgram is the size. We all acknowledge he has to get strong. He has to add weight there. But I'm intrigued to see how he is in Gonzaga. I think he's going to be productive within the WCC. I think he's going to be productive with Gonzaga. They, I think Mark Few did a really good job with Jalen Suggs of being able to incorporate a five-star freshman with a variety of vets and still be productive. Um, you just hope that Holgram is able to be productive in the collegiate basketball setting, which he will be, to maintain that stock. So um intrigued to see. All these guys play like you just stated. I'm going to be on the lookout for all of them. And I think we're going to have a pretty good year of college basketball to look out for. Yeah, for sure. You know, those are just a few. Um, definitely had to throw Jaden Ivey in there because I just think that he's, you know, as a returning player, he's kind of flown just a little bit under the radar until that World Cup game. So anybody who followed that even loosely probably saw his name a couple of times. So. For sure, indeed. And with that, that is the end of episode 27 of the Intimate Intel podcast with Hoop Intellect. Before I go, I want to thank Hoop for being able to come here and do this podcast and with me. Always good to talk basketball with you, the prospects and whatnot, because I know you do your homework. I know you analyze these guys. I know you take this very serious. And you do a very good job with it. So it's great to have you on. Uh, your thoughts with the segment, what you're looking forward to this season not just in college, but in NBA basketball as well. Yeah, man, I appreciate you having me on. You know, I'm just I'm just excited to, you know, hopefully, hopefully get to see people in, you know, normal environments. Once again, just seeing that dynamic because, um, you know, we all know it has an effect on, you know, the play and on both levels, both in college. And then in the NBA, I'm really excited to see, you know, the big threes um, out in L.A. and New York. And, yeah, just excited for more basketball and new faces. For sure, indeed. For sure, indeed. Um, I agree with you as well. That fandom aspect is huge in the game. It's going to be great to see that back in pro sports overall, but especially in basketball. It does affect guys' level of play. Some people rise to the occasion. Others do not. And that's that type of atmosphere, especially in college that I think creates that unique dynamic that you really can experience in other sports. And with that, it's the end of episode 27. Hopefully it's a good listen for you guys. It was great talking about a great experience in it for myself. I'll be back next week with another guest and another episode. Hope you guys enjoy. Peace.